Welcome to the Debts We Owe podcast, the podcast about the ties that bind. My name is Ben Reininger, and today, here I have on my podcast, my esteemed guest, my lovely friend, student of economics, graduate of Kent State, Theo Muller. Um, sorry, uh, we had a, had a week off without a podcast last week. I got LASIK eye surgery. That's really fun. But I know you guys don't <laughs> want to hear about LASIK eye surgery. You guys want came probably clicked on this video to hear about economics. So let's just get right into it. Um, I wanted to ask you, Theo, because you're my guest. I want the, the, my the audience yeah. to know you as a person a little bit too. So I guess That's my fair. first question is just kind of two-part. Um, it's how would you define economics and what got you interested in economics? It's a big part of who you are. Why, is, why was that your major in college? And you became a... Yeah. Data analytics, um, a data analyst, and you use a lot of the mm -hmm. same skills from economics. Why, why, well, like, um, so yeah, those are the two questions. All right. So I would define economics as the study of decision making uh, when deciding among scarce resources. Mm -hmm. So pretty by the book definition, but I think I like it because it's broad. Um, and the, one of the reasons that I like economics is because it's so broad. Uh, there's really, Honestly, I probably try and apply economics too much <laughs> to too many life situations, but really it does feel ap applicable uh, in just almost any life situation. Um, it just, because uh, you're always dealing with scarce resources and uh, having to make decisions. And I think that's what like started my love for economics was just figuring out that that's what it really is. And it's not just about markets and finance. I'm not really a finance person. Like I'll yeah. pay some attention to the stock market, but that's, not where my interest in economics comes in. I'm definitely more of a micro guy. Um, I really like just thinking about how people make decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think that economics does the best way of, does the best job of thinking about that. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I started getting into it uh, in high school, reading 538. Um, and uh, just seeing how much they were able to do with, uh, like economics, economic methods of statistical analysis and applying that to all different kinds of fields. Uh, and then going into college, uh, I thought economics would be a good um, major to help me go into law school eventually. I ended up branching off that path because I was just like the, I just like the number crunching better. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, so I'd say it just it, once I realized that that was what economics was and it's not just about finance or whatever, that was what really made it interesting for me. It was like, I can apply this to all different kinds of problems. Um, mm -hmm. And right. that's what, what I'm, I'm excited to talk about that today. Like all the different yeah. problems that economics can be applied to. Right. Because, you know, economics, if it's just decision-making, literally there's economics in every single day, you mm -hmm. know, when um, you decide to, whether you're going to go to, um, well, not just buy something, go to Dunkin' or Starbucks when you're choosing whether to go to, um, you know, a park and just yeah. read or you want to exercise. You're, yeah. you're deciding what gives you more utility, value, um, but reading, getting that. We just, we just had a uh, debate over the utility of cutting your sandwich uh, at, at my workplace the other day. We were, I, I was bringing up the opportunity cost of uh, the taking the time to get out a knife and cut your sandwich. And I was arguing that the benefit cutting the sandwich wasn't worth it. And there was also the, uh, the implicit uh, suggestion mm -hmm. that happens when you cut a sandwich that, uh, that you shouldn't eat the crust and it leads to food waste. So I got to bring economics to the decision of whether or not to cut a sandwich with the, scar with the scarce time that you have. 
Right. So you can really and, apply it to any situation. Yeah. And the extent to which it's worth it for you to cut the sandwich, um, like it's not like there's like the right answer as to whether the sandwich mm-hmm. should be cut. It depends on how much you value the sandwich being cut against other exactly. things. And um, that's where kind of money comes in is money is our measuring stick of value in our society. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's a whole nother discussion in itself. Yeah. I mean, there's many ways you could define economics. I mean, the definition is if it's decision-making under scarcity um, is correct. I kind of like to define it, you know, in terms of um, subject actor thing being acted upon in the sense of defining it as economics is the study of people interacting with value and scarce resources, right? Because mm-hmm. if you just define it as people and scarce resources, it ignores that there's all, there's a whole kind of study as to, you know, like, I mean, economics yeah. is just, you know, acknowledging what people's incentives are. There's like the yeah. distinction between like positive. That's and where the decision making, I feel like, comes in because uh, you're obviously decision making right. to maximize value. But also sometimes you're not decision making to maximize value. Um, sometimes. And then we'll, we'll as, talk uh, about, Th- as Thaler talks about. Yeah. And, some, and then when it comes to political decision making um, and political economy, there comes well, maximizing value for who? And then mm-hmm. we get into discussions over egalitarianism, Rawlsian thinking, right? And then, you know, because economic, economic philosophy isn't just, is as distinguished from just economics, talks about, well, what should we value? You know, whereas yeah. economics is just like, people value these things, this is what That's happens. something I like about economics, is that it can't you know, tell us what we ought to value. Um, right. I, I, think, I think that that's, that's uh, that would be an overreach, and I'm glad that economics, in general, I mean, there are certainly economists economists that do that but economics as a discipline um is agnostic to uh real value uh it only cares about the perceived value the value that the market places on something precisely precisely and then and then you could do with that information what you will so that's kind of like a, a good introduction to economics for anybody nobody's taken an economics class class you know and so now next thing i want to talk about I mean, there was five main points I wanted to hit, and you know, but the first one was just the history of economics. Um, on one hand, like since humans began, you know, humans had to make decisions to choose whether to plant corn or wheat in a field, mm-hmm. even though that's only a small percentage of human history that humans were even doing that. But you yeah. know, when you're hunter a hunter gatherer, do you hunt in this location or that location? Perceived utility. But really, it's like the term economics doesn't go back to ancient Rome or Greece. No. It doesn't go back to biblical times. It's actually very recent, um, coming about, you know, like, like around the Enlightenment time, more like, you know, and I, I, I didn't do the research myself, hoping that you might know this. When was the, the term economics first ever even coined? And what, does, and what really, who brought the field into its existence? I'm not sure when the term was coined. I do know that Malthus, uh, as much as, I mean, we'll, we'll get into my uh, distaste for Malthus's um, conclusions he came to, but uh-huh. he was the first person to formalize a study of decision-making uh, that, that w- could be called e- economics, I think. Um, and I believe that he was uh, late 16th, or yeah, late 1600s. Uh, Malthus... Uh, 
Yeah, uh, sorry, seventeen. He was seventeen uh, hundreds. So a little bit past was the Malthus. Enlightenment, you know. Yeah, so a good bit uh, past it's, the it's really very recent. Um, very recent. Ec- yeah, economics has become uh, a thing that people have thought about formally. Uh, I mean, obviously, people think about these things informally all the time. It's it's how we move around our lives and make decisions. Yeah, that, Mar- the, the science of economics. Yeah, markets uh, existed long before mm-hmm. economics did. Yeah. Um, he, yeah. Humans yeah, trying market, to market have existed as long as there have been more than one human. Um, well, yep, and the, yep, more than one human who want to trade things. Yeah, which is natural because there's we always have things that others want that we don't have, and they want something of us. But then that facilitates trade, mm-hmm. and there you have a market. Pretty soon you're applying money to that, and that's a whole other story. But there's always yeah. been, been been markets. Um, uh, Although that itself is things like anthropologists debate, and I don't want to go on mm-hmm. a big side tangent here, but like I know I read like um, when I'm I, I my internship for Alliance for Just Money, um, they're gonna be by the way they're gonna be my next or not maybe neither my next or the one after that podcast. Um, it's gonna be with them, but I had to read this like book called Debt: The First Five Thousand Years by like David Graeber, and basically he's arguing that like. That like or the early he's an anthropologist a leftist anthropologist and he argued that like the earliest human societies they were tribal that like there's no evidence of them of people trading within the tribe and I'm like well that that doesn't that seems fishy you know I yeah mean, like something. yeah I, I learned it I learned to trade when I was like two years old when it's like I want that toy I have this toy let's make something work you right know? Like, it, it does seem like pretty a pretty ingrained. natural thing um I guess that. Maybe it was, but like money, but like trading with money in, in hunter gatherer tribes, but probably not. Money is a more mm-hmm. a definition that comes with agriculture and uh, innovation that comes with agriculture yeah. and civilization. You need yeah, to even a, like formal trading might not have happened, but it was just like an understanding that we're gonna. Right. It, it, it's more of a social contract trade where right. like everything happens up front and we're gonna help each other, but like that's still a trade. You're trading it still off is a being, trade. being an individual unit yeah. working by yourself. Yeah, and I feel like money, like, kind of like requires civilization or a broader culture. It's like a because as I talked kind of my last podcast with Omar Syed, money is mm-hmm. kind of a religion. Even when it is gold or something, a, a metal, it's like, like besides being used for jewelry, gold didn't have yeah. much uses in it. It requires religion. a lot of faith. It requires faith that other people are, in, in like a kind of a known understanding of the community as to what this this thing money means. Let's talk about Malthus because you said, um, and we've talked about this before outside the podcast, you know, that you think economics really started with Malthus. Explain who this guy Malthus was, why you hate him, and uh, <laughs> why you think that even though you hate him, he was kind of the first real economist in your view. Yeah. So I don't hate is a, I, I, I hate what people have done with his ideas since. I think that. At the time, I can't really blame him for getting things wrong in the way that he did, uh, because mm-hmm. he was pre-industrial revolution. Um, and so basically, Thomas Malthus was a guy who looked around at the state of the world when he was writing and saw lots of famine. He saw lots of people struggling to feed their families. And he said, we're approaching a drop-off. And, and this is why economics for a long time was referred to as the dismal science, because Malthus gave economists a reputation for just predicting the end of the world, basically, where Malthus said uh, that the, the, the world basically didn't have the resources to sustain the growing human population. 
and that it was inevitable that uh, we would run out of resources and drop off. And he predicted that it would happen very soon. I think, I believe uh, he predicted like mid 1800s for when we would just like see a massive drop off in population and everyone's gonna die and there's gonna be these massive famines and we're gonna have to lose like two thirds of the world in order to survive. And um, those, and he, he did a lot of math to come to those mm -hmm. conclusions. And this is why he's like the first true economist, he's the first person who's uh, looking at um, scarce resources and trying to figure out how best to decide what to do with them using math. Um, and so he looked at the scarce resources we have and he was like, this isn't enough. We need to like stop population growth or else we're going to screw ourselves. And um, Malthus was wrong, obviously. The world did not end in the mid 1800s. Uh, we're here. Um, and that was because of the industrial revolution, which he couldn't really have reasonably been asked to predict. But, uh, basically my problem with Malthus at, at the root is that he takes too low a view of human innovation and, uh, of the value of humans as resources, um, which is something that, uh, my personal favorite economist, Julian Simon talks about all the time, uh, is the, the value of humans as resources and the, the ability that we have to, uh, use other resources more efficiently and to even find new resources to use. And uh, so basically humans have the ability to make other resources less scarce, which is a pretty remarkable ability and pretty game-changing when it comes to economics. But that, that's the gist of Malthus, what he thought and why he ended up being wrong. Exactly, because he underestimated the role of human innovation in inducing so much growth. Mm -hmm. um, to match for scarcity. I've heard it said, somebody told me, and I mean, this debate could, in this history, like could be, um, it, this itself could be a debate, that the, the idea that Malthus was correct in describing everything that happened before him. Mm -hmm. but as It's the moment he published his work, what he said stopped being true. Yeah. That before he was like, you know, he, he came to prominence, it was true that, you know, there was a pattern throughout history of populations growing and growing and growing, and then there not being enough resources to sustain those, there being famine, not being able to feed these people. Many people um, get like, um, like, like die. Mothers don't have as many children because of malnutrition or whatever. Population goes way down. But then all of a sudden there's excess resources because of the, 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 the large amount of death. Then people are eating well because they have a lot more resources than there are people. People eat well, they have a ton of children, and it goes back up again. And population oscillates over time. Um, over the centuries, you might see a gradual um, increase in population because of technological advancement. But generally, you're on this very, this, this oscillating, kind of like a sine or cosine curve, mm -hmm. very flat, you know. Um, I think there's some truth to that, but... Yeah. Um, and, and it is interesting. Yeah, you're totally right. He was uh, on point up until the time when he published. And that's why I say I can't blame him. Like, I'm not, that's why I don't like hate Malthus because he, mm -hmm. I mean, he was doing the best he could. Uh, yeah. I think Neo Malthusians make the same mistake today where they, they look at incomplete data sets and they assume that that's going to be the way the world is forever. Uh, and if you look at a lot of their predictions, their predictions hold very well for third world countries. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, but they're just assuming that those countries, that the whole world is going to stay at that level for forever. And uh, it just has not been the pattern of the right. past two centuries. Yeah. And then there's also the, yeah. You know, and I would just say 
that if the if the other Malthusians have any point, is that I don't is is that you, while you can't underestimate human innovation, sometimes you can't overestimate it either, in the sense that there are some things that humans just you know, a, as intelligent as, as our combined knowledge is, you might not innovate as fast as the problem accelerates when it comes to climate change. That's the other thing, and I'm very open-minded. I don't know what the case will be. It may be that by the end of this century. We're really screwed in a lot of ways, and that you know people and, and there is environmental catastrophe, but there's just so much that I don't know. It's just mm -hmm. one human with a very limited mind yeah. and a very lim even if I did have a much more sophisticated understanding of data and mathematics than I do, and I already have more of a sophisticated understanding than the average person being an econ major, but not a data analytics major. Frankly, I don't I don't enjoy the math. You enjoy the math. That's why you didn't become a lawyer. That's why I am I'm going to be a lawyer. Um, but even if you do understand like extremely sophisticated mathematics, you don't still don't understand all the data that's out there. Yeah. You still can't factor in every variable that's out there. Yeah. And you still, um, and so you still, every person's very ignorant about the whole world. It's such a complex yeah. system. I was kind of talking with this, uh, with my roommate yesterday because uh, we were playing uh, Arima, that Om the game that, that Omar Sy had invented, the, the, the chess mm -hmm. variant. And I talked about, well, the way he designed the game, in the first two or three moves that each player makes, there are already like more combinations than there are stars in the galaxy. And that's just with a simple, like, um, like, like eight by eight uh, board, you know, with, 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 with rules that you could teach somebody in 10 minutes. You know, you think about the entire economy with all the people. Um, there's just so it's just so much that you cannot know or understand. Yeah, um, it's a complex system, and so yeah. And and then one more thing I would I'd say when I think of neo Malthusianism is that even at, at this present stage, you know, we've seen exponential growth in population that we have been able to keep up with and feed for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, since Malthus wrote his treatise, but like, even let's say that all of a sudden the exponential curve in people, uh, stops being matched by the exponential curve in technology and the exponential curve in technology also evens out. Well, it's also projected that population growth is also evening out because birth control, like any country that becomes yeah. westernized or not even westernized so much as just extremely just well, a first world country yeah extremely wealthy so this not just does just, just doesn't include western europe us canada um new zealand and australia it also like includes china and japan yeah you know those especially china and japan yeah especially china and japan but us population wouldn't be increasing if it weren't for immigrants you know it, it's flattening out so I don't know if, um, and that, that alone is creating problems for social security systems yeah. to pay for the old, it's like they need more younger workers to pay for people who can't to, to work is, for, for people who can't work. So I'm this not, is definitely a personal take, but the thing that I'm much more afraid of in the future is that we have too few people rather than that we have too many. Uh, uh, yeah, I would agree. Yeah. And I would, yeah. And like, we, I would also say that like concern over overpopulation misses the point. It's not because it, it's not even so much there being people, uh, more people as to what are people doing to the planet? What kind mm -hmm. of things are we emitting with the products we're buying or selling? And how, 
and how can we change those systems? Because because we can in in different ways. Yeah. Whether to talk. And also, you know, the more screwed we are, like your your thing that you said of like maybe in a hundred years, like we're totally screwed. Uh, there's a lot of innovation out there that we like that we have that we're just not putting into practice because like it's not the doomsday scenario. But there's a lot like we don't even really have to like innovate a crazy amount. There's solutions that are like scientifically shown to be viable. We just like it's kind of like risky or whatever. But like there's stuff we can do if there's a doomsday scenario and the oceans are like taking over the continents, whatever, like we have solutions. We're just not putting them in place now because we don't, it's not extreme enough that we need to at this moment. The world will but, have, well, the world could have more extremities being two degrees hotter, but mm -hmm. it's not like crops are completely in, vi in viable to grow at those temperatures Yeah, and so on and so forth. Interesting. Yeah. So that's Malthus. And you think he was the, first real economist, even though there's, there's not, it's not like an official designation, like, because he thought about scarcity um, yeah. in a very- I, I'm sure that when this podcast blows up in, in a couple of years, some, some person's going to find me and tag some Persian economist that I didn't know about and, and, and tell me that I'm whitewashing history. But You're, to my yeah. to my knowledge, to, to what I have been taught thus far, uh, uh -huh. Malthus is the first, the first person who systematically studied scarcity gotcha gotcha yeah no definitely the persians um and that like like probably had something that predated every single white um philosopher yeah. and economist that ever came up with anything a persian came up with it before that yeah too I, bad all of their books got burned so <laughs> we just won't know it's yeah it's just a bummer yeah so yeah i don't know and my my knowledge of economic history um it's limited in terms of the economics discipline, because I know you have, mm -hmm. well, first, well, we got, we talk about Malthus. We can't not then talk about Marx, Smith, and Ricardo, because those mm -hmm. are the next big, like when most people think of the first ever economist, they think of Adam Smith versus yeah. Karl Marx, the dual battle between <clears throat> left and right, you know, left and right yeah. that we see p persisting yeah. to this day. Smith was certainly the first capitalist, which is how most Westerners, I think, just perceive of economics is they think of it as the study of capitalism and markets within capitalism. But, and in fact, you can also study just like businesses that have a, like in which the workers do own the means of production, what incentives exist in those businesses. Yeah. Um, and you know, that's the point is that like, I mean, economics is supposed to be, you know, a discipline that you can, that where you, you're either studying positive economics, as I mentioned earlier, what is, you know, what, what do people do in these certain scenarios and why because of certain incentives and what can we likely anticipate is going to happen in this scenario. And then it's a separate study, but what should be, what should we value and how should a firm be organized? How should a society be organized around firms and so on and so forth. But yeah. And, um, yeah. And so Smith, you know, came up with his um, wealth of nations and, you know, um, and um, a much more entertaining read than I thought it was would be going in. Yeah, I have to say, unfortunately, I never read the wealth of nations or um, fun fact that I, I think I've never actually I've read. Well, I've read excerpts of the wealth of nations. I mean, other books, but never, never mm -hmm. read the wealth of nations itself. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, well, the, the big um gist of the wealth of nations you know the, the, what people take away with from the wealth of nations is the, the concept of the invisible hand right mm -hmm. the idea that people the, the essential idea is people following in their own self-interest yeah. um 
do end up doing things oftentimes that benefit the whole. Yeah. Um, and, and, and yeah, it's about the idea of why value is created in markets. Like what, what is it about markets that leads to value creation? Mm-hmm. So the very, yeah, exactly. And you know, and you could debate like, um, there's obviously circumstances in which doing what only maximizes your own self does hurt other people. And you could give those examples, but like generally speaking, what I think the Wealth of Nations does do well is show the simple fact that, well, there are circumstances, many circumstances where two people acting completely selfishly can make things better. Um, the perfect example, like it's as simple as me back when I know I'm taking a semester off of delivering pizzas, um, but oh, it's my last semester. But back when I was a pizza delivery driver, it's like when I chose to work as a pizza delivery driver, I mean, I cared about the customers, but I didn't have to, you know, I could have just worked mm-hmm. so I could have gotten money and the customers could have just worked, just, um, gave me money so they could get their pizza but we don't have to give a shit about each other. Yeah. Um, it's ba- I think it's better if we live in a world where we give a shit about each other. And you can talk about long-term development. As you're saying give a shit, I just want to clear this up before we go on the podcast. What's, my, what's our po- podcast policy on swearing? What, what am I allowed to bro- broach here? Um, you're allowed to say anything, but and that reflects on you. Um, okay. Granted, it, could, it also reflects on... Um, me, like, if you just start saying, just don't, I mean, not that you would do that, but this is for all podcast guests. <laughs> don't say something like incredibly racist because that looks bad. Yeah. Um, but, just because it looks bad, not because any other well, reason. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, it, yeah. Well, it looks, well, I mean, it's because it, I, and it, it, this, this is just the inevitable guilt by association thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I wish that, like, I wouldn't be held guilty for having people on with, ter- like, with um, terrible views. I wish that just reflects on them and not on me, but that's not how people work. Um, So, anywho. But yeah, shit is completely good. Shit's a pretty common word. This is not for children. This is an adult podcast. If a kid is sitting through this, props to you. You deserve to hear the word shit. (laughs) You deserve to hear it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the first episode we talked about suicide yeah. And like whether it's a mortal decision. Um, it, yeah. So there's all kinds of stuff we talk about. Um, shit is completely um, acceptable. I mean, you can say the F-bomb. I'm not going to say the F-bomb. I, I reserve that for the company of friends in private okay. settings. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that's the policy. Right, okay. Cool. Good to know. I don't plan on saying anything out of pocket, but I just wanted to know beforehand. Definitely, definitely. Okay, so um, yeah, okay, so Sorry, yeah, I just brought yeah, so, <laughs> so I uh, so that's Smith. So Smith's big thing was just saying how people can, because of mutual advantage, can do things selfishly and improve mm-hmm. circumstances. Yeah, now, and you one caveat I like to point out is that uh, he wouldn't say that like selfish actions are good, but selfish actions within a marketplace are good. Uh, so like, for instance, like me, like hurting someone else just like doing physical harm to them that doesn't exist within a marketplace because there's no there's no decision on their end right what he's saying is when when multiple people are all working together to maximize their own self-interest when they have competing self-interest then that leads to value being created if it's just me trying to maximize my my self-interest then that's not going to lead to value creation because 
I'm not competing with anyone else. It's all yeah. about competition it, is it, what truly drives value it's, creation. It's, yeah, it's self-interest in the context of trade, private property, and competition, right? Mm -hmm. And how, but you can, you can create value both through trait, like the self-interest in the form of trade and self-interest in the form of innovation to be better against your competition. Yeah. There are like the classic example is my, my neighbor makes tables. I make tables. So I make better, cheaper tables than my neighbor because I want to make more money. And then everyone ends up with better, cheaper tables. That, that exactly. That's precisely it. Now, some people in our, in our body politic, just the whole idea of like, like selfishness, reaching good outcomes, just kind of rubs them the wrong way. It makes them think of Ayn Rand or Ronald Reagan, but you don't need yeah. to like say that we, we must apply selfishness to all areas of life. And that's, also, yeah, that's know, the difference between Rand and uh, Smith is that Smith would say selfishness is a tool in the toolbox of a good market society. designer. Right. Like it, it, as you're designing a market, you should like acknowledge that people are selfish and then design a market that works even better because they are. You right. shouldn't, it's not about encouraging people to be selfish. Rand would encourage people to be selfish, which I think uh, takes... Mm -hmm. Smith's ideas and just twist them and turns them into something that they're not. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I was having a conversation, bringing back my roommate again, with just um, Jake from the first podcast. Just yesterday, we were talking about like debating, like he was basically saying that like his girlfriend, Lindsay argues that like all actions are fundamentally selfish. Cause even when you do something kind for another person, you do it for the good feeling. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I've I, argued that before. See, I've, I, I know this is different from our, but I'm not going to, we're not going to go out too much on this, but I would disagree. It, 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 it becomes tautological. It ultimately depends on how you define selfish. Mm -hmm. Two things are fundamentally true about humans. One, we often do things for others to help because we just like and experience joy from the fact of giving other people satisfaction. Sometimes we yeah. get no other satisfaction other than seeing their satisfaction. Like when, you know, like giving a friend a gift or, or, or Mr. Beast other. giving a homeless guy money. Right, right. Exactly. That's one fact about humans. The other fact though, is sometimes we do things that truly feel unpleasant for our set, like hurt, like do not feel good as we do them, Yeah. but we do them because we think it improves the world because we have a set of values about the world, mm -hmm. like a soldier dying for their country, like because they want their country's system to persevere. Yeah. Um, and another state- Or because they want to protect their friends or whatever. Yeah, right, whatever. right. Any number of values. And like, you can't say that like the soldier fights in the war just because it just feels so good to be a yeah. soldier. Um, now, if so, like you could, you could frame both of those actions as selfish, that even the soldier is doing it because they, they're, they're trying to create the world, the image that they best see fit or so on and so forth. Yeah. But this point, that's not what people typically mean when they say selfish. Yeah. When, they typically when I say that I have argued that before, I mean like I have argued that position before. I would not, I, I don't hold that position. Uh, right, right. I, I, I do believe that people do selfless things. Mm -hmm. um, I think as a rule, if I'm going to guess why someone is doing something, not knowing what the action is, I'm going to guess that it's for a selfish reason. Because right. I, I hold the belief that people are pretty not good. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I think be, I have I have I have a few people are good and bad in different ways. But I'd say that like you can be selfish. Um, like a few people different people have different connotations around selfish. I think economists just when they think of selfish, especially libertarians, Randians that come across, they they think of anything that satisfies the self. 
Like mm-hmm. when I go to buy a London fog at a Starbucks, I mean, I'm doing that selfishly, but yeah. like, and that's, that, that's what, that's how I would consider the definition of selfish, but some people would, would kind of like have a bizarre expression on their face when I would tell them, Oh, I did something selfish today. I, yeah. I bought a, a London fog at a Starbucks. He'd be like, cause they think of selfish things as doing yeah. things. The connotation of the word itself is it's, it I has do- to be taking something from someone else. It has to be taking something, exploiting. That's where I think. It, that's where I think there's an important distinction between self. I think we should talk about it in terms of self-interest rather than selfishness, because uh, right. I think I do think that selfishness has that implicit in it. That's why there's two words. Is because self-interest is just saying I'm doing something because it's what I want to do. It's my own interest. Right. And selfishness is saying I'm doing something that is my own interest at the expense of someone else. Precisely. As if you're exploiting somebody else yeah. when you're acting selfishly. Yeah. And speaking of exploitation, let's talk about Karl Marx. <laughs> Good transition. I like um, it. Yeah, because he's the last big figure in the early um, 19th century. Uh, well, I guess we didn't really talk about Ricardo, but Ricardo's biggest innovation, I feel like, was comparative advantage. The idea that a person, and that's a whole long thing to explain. You yeah. can Google it if you want to understand it yeah. itself. Some people or just get, take, like, micro. Yeah, anybody that <laughs> takes an intro in a micro course, they can get really bored by comparative advantage because the problems can be boring or confusing when you don't never have worked with it before but I, I don't know i think the idea of comparative advantage to a nerdy econ student it just it's, it is it was a profound idea that like yeah for sure you could be worse at everything than like another person but you could still specialize and create value through trade because of opportunity cost that was mm-hmm. ricardo's whole thing um in, and um then there's Karl Marx, and he, boy, did he have an effect on history. Uh, what? You think? Yeah, I think he did. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is your view of Karl Marx? Just generally, just, just... Um, Generally, uh, I think that uh, he was too optimistic about human nature. Uh, mm. I think that uh, self-interest is too powerful. Um, like, it's one of those things where, like, yeah, if, like, economists love to do this. Like, this is not just a Marx thing. Like, basically, every economist has done this. We're like, I do this all the time because I'm a big UBI fan. And I'm like, oh, UBI is going to fix all these problems. And realistically, I'm probably not recognizing enough how self-interested human beings are. And uh, economists will do this all the time where we assume that humans are logical or we assume that humans are whatever. And we're just not. And I think that Marx his theories have that problem Mm -hmm. where sure he was like he he looked at the people who were exploiting others and he was like those people are bad and they exploit others and we should find a way to stop them from doing that totally noble i i love the aspiration but uh he thought that there was something intrinsic about the bourgeoisie about the people about the exploiters that caused them to exploit uh that was different that there and there was something different about the people who didn't exploit that was Mm -hmm. internal and I, I, I just disagree with him there. I think that it's not anything internal that causes us to exploit one another. Rather, it's if people have power, as a rule, they will end up exploiting others. I'm not saying every person. Um, there are plenty of people who, uh, mm-hmm. at least for most of their lives, don't exploit others. So there's no, um, there's no essential difference between, like in the humanity of the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat. That's yeah. the proletariat. Can't, it, it, like any poor person, you make them a rich person. Any rich person, you make them a poor person. They probably 
the yeah. the amount of exploitation probably yeah. wouldn't be different because people the rich people who look at the poor people that like steal and abuse the system and whatever uh were they in the poor person's shoes would do the same thing and the poor person that looks at the rich person who underpays his workers and has bad factory conditions and all this stuff would do the same thing if they were in their position because you don't they're motivated think by self-interest. You don't think there's any difference in the moral, um, the morality of people in, in our different classes in our society? That people, rich Not people, intrinsically, no. Rich, 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 rich people, in our, you think that rich people in our own society are fundamentally not more immoral as people than people who make under $40,000 in our society? Not intrinsically. Um, I think that their their immorality tends to be a lot more big and bold when we hear about it. Like, no person making under $40,000 a year could do what Jeffrey Epstein did, just like as a matter of means. I right. don't care how much you want to create a slave island with a bunch of underage girls. You're not doing it on that salary. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, it's just not happening. Uh, so I think that, like, that, that's where, like, we can, like, look at the evil that it, when you have a lot more means, you have a lot more means to do evil things. Right. Also, like, there's plenty of people who, at every strata of making money, who will, like, shoot a family because they want what they have or, like, do all kinds of evil things. And it's, no, I don't think that there's an intrinsic difference. I think that... It's just that uh, rich people, me- as a function of having more power, mm-hmm. they, they have a, a more negative moral effect, but that's just because they have more money. Yeah. It's, it's that classic Oscar Wilde quote that I, like, uh, I um, totally believe in. When somebody asked Oscar Wilde, what's the difference between rich people and poor people? He said, quite simply, well, rich people, they have more money. Yeah. That, that's, that, that's pretty much yeah. it. And I, and I kind of subscribe to that view as well, that I don't think- And then, like, there will yeah. be learned differences, obviously. Like, as you go through life having more money, mm-hmm. you might, like, expect people to treat you a certain way, or you might get more education, or as you go through life, as a poor person, you might expect people to treat you a certain way or learn that you have to treat others a certain way to get by, whatever. Like, but uh, that's not anything intrinsic about you. That's things that you've learned as a condition of being wealthy or poor for a long period of time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, because kind of all, all this reminds me of like a story, probably the best story I ever read in the Spanish language, Lazario de Tormes. I had to read it for like Spanish four or three in high school. Yeah, but basically the whole story was about how people are immoral around different, every, every class in society. Because basically the story, as I recall it, like follows an orphan boy who like he's an orphan. So he has to go provide for himself and make money. So he goes and gets hired by a blind man to like be his guide or whatever. And then the blind, but then even the blind man who was poor and blind exploits him like tries to steal something from him. And then the, the kid gets more money and he rises up in, in, in the social class all the way up to the nobility. But basically the, sto- the, whole, the entire theme of the story is each individual at each rung of society as this poor orphan boy grows up and becomes rich, everybody sucks and is immoral at every single stage. That's, and I thought that, I don't know, I thought that story was, um, I don't know, was interesting. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. It, and that, it certainly uh, lends credence to my personal belief that everyone sucks in this world. <laughs> yeah, I, I get that. That's, it's a whole other discussion. But keep it with you again. I'm just, I guess the one last thing I would say about Marx, you said that um, basically the gist of what I got heard you say was, you know, that Marx is, you didn't even contest Marx's idea that, you know, capitalism is exploitation. You just say, said that, well, you put the proletariat in charge, 
have them know in the weeds of production, they will also be exploitative in different ways yeah. that people will exploit people no matter how you <clears throat> switch the power structure, which kind of reflects, yeah. I guess, this view of e econ. E <clears throat> so people will always be selfish. The question is not how do we change the fundamental moral, of hu moral nature of humans because the fundamental moral nature yeah. of humans won't change. The question is how do we structure a system mm -hmm. around around us sinful beings yeah. that minimizes harm. Yeah. Um, but I, 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 would, I would phrase it as how do we create a system that leverages self-interest to create the most good? I think that trying to minimize bad that makes it, is, that's never a, gonna, is never going to work as well as creating more good. I gotcha. Uh, and so like, yeah, obviously mm -hmm. there's like, yeah, we shouldn't have slavery. Like that's like pretty, pretty easy to take off the table. But like, uh, I, th I think that this is generally tends to be why I am in favor of less regulation from the government is because I think that we're less good at minimizing bad. Like we're, we're less able to do that because we, um, like there's just ways to get around any type mm. of legislation. Like people are, are self-interested. They're going to do when we try and stop people from being self-interested. It doesn't tend to work well. I think give people the room to compete freely and you're going to see a lot more innovation. Uh, yeah. Give people the room to experiment mm. and try new things. I agree and with, yeah. ultimately the things that are successful is what's going to like the, th the things that are successful at creating the most good are going to move forward. And yeah, those things might uh, be things that are more exploitative, but even if they are, because they're the things that are creating the most good, the good that they're creating is going to be most likely outweighing the exploitation. Gotcha. God, no, I, I get that view. Do you, so do you agree though with Marx's definition of profit as exploitation? You just think that it's good exploitation. It's a, it's a good thing. I, I also disagree with his uh, idea of uh, where value is created. Um, that he, he, he believes that basically all value is created by the worker. Right. Um, and so I, I just, I think that uh, Locke has a point uh, when he talked, like when he was talking about private property, that uh, like ownership uh, and owning capital and making that investment mm -hmm. is also creating value. And I think that just because it, it's, it's not as direct, you're not hands-on with it, doesn't mean that you're not creating value. Because the value that you're creating or the, the thing that you're sacrificing to create value is risk. You're taking right. on risk. And mm -hmm. so uh, I was reading an article a couple months ago about uh, risk and uh, different systems that have been created to manage risk. And uh, one of the systems that was talked about was uh, tenant farmers and how uh, obviously there have been systems of ten tenant farming that have been awful, but there's also been a lot of systems where people like didn't want to farm on their own because when you're a tenant farmer, you absorb a lot less risk. You're like taking in a consistent amount of money, no matter how well your crops do, uh, and then whoever owns the fields is taking all of the risk of what if the weather's bad? What if the, the locusts come? All that stuff. They're absorbing the risk. And, and so by absorbing the risk, they have created value because they've allowed other people to do their work better. Mm -hmm. No, I, I see that. Yeah. It's just, um, yeah, I mean, it like my whole thing with like profit is exploitation. I mean, I, I understand profit is just what's left over after you pay the workers and all your other costs. That's the fundamentally what profit yeah. is, whether it's exploitation. Well, it's um, definitely exploitation if labor is the only thing that creates value, which was what Marx said. Right. And it's just, and that's where I fundamentally disagree with him there. Because, you're, because you're taking away value that the worker created. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, 
It's interesting because I just, I, I, yeah, I think of value. It's interesting to think of value as being created, as I just think of value as a relative thing. Like the workers, fundamentally, what they create is the product, and mm -hmm. you pay, you value them in money. People value the product in money. Um, but and so I think the best way to think about it is like a tree is less avail is less valuable than the table that you make out of the tree. Right. Precisely. So, so there, ha the like consumers there has add value, value to there. the tree. Yep. And and what's left over is profit. And the question is just to what extent do does the capitalist versus the worker deserve that profit? And um, that's a moral question, a normative mm -hmm. question. And whether you define that relationship as overall, um, you, if you define that as oppressive because it because you think workers deserve more, then that's fine. That's what you think of as oppression. But I think it just depends on the circumstance. Like I don't. It seems kind of silly to think of me as oppressed or exploited when, like, for example, I worked for a local pizza ch shop owner or, or I worked for, a, 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 like, my neighbor that owns a landscaping business and she has a profit, right? It's mm -hmm. like we both mutually benefited. Yeah. I And I'm not, like, living in terrible conditions or living in better, you know, and so on. And also, so if, if your neighbor didn't own that land, like, if your neighbor didn't make a profit, then they wouldn't own that landscaping business. And could you do landscaping still? Sure, but you know what would change is you would take on a lot of risk because right. you would be working by yourself for yourself and you would be taking on all the risk of buying all the equipment and make, and what, like, what if you buy all this equipment and then you aren't able to get any uh, clients? What if you buy all this equipment and then you like run over a stone and it goes flying through a window and hit someone in the head? Right. And then like you're liable for that. Like there's all of these risks. Exactly. My neighbor. It's, it's, it's actually, I don't know problem. why I said neighbor. She, she's not my neighbor. She's my a boy scout mom. But um, yeah, no, she took that. You're right. She takes on risks and that does itself add value. Um, I guess where a lot of my Marxist or socialist friends might then be skeptical is this, this kind of makes perfect intuitive sense, especially for like a small business, you mm -hmm. know, but like it would like, 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 it's just when it comes to the massive, the, the corporation and the corporations also face risks. Indeed they do, but oftentimes with, with lobbyists and so on, they can shield themselves from different risks and they have a monopsonistic or monopolistic power. And that's a whole nother um, subject in and of itself. And that the story of industrialization and your monopolies, monopsonies, company towns, that's the whole 19th century. And, you know, there's a lot of those things coming into develop developments. There's developments in the history of banking. And then we could talk about the 19th century. It's, it's an area of history where I'm kind of weak um, in many respects. I could, you could pry my mind. I could pry your mind. But we have limited time in this podcast. And there's a lot of other things um, that I, I want to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, so let's just fast forward past Karl Marx to 1913. Um, Real quick on, on the monopoly monopsony side, I just want to say that uh, absolutely – uh, from from an Adam Smith perspective, those things are bad because they don't engender competition, and competition drives uh, innovation. Like I said, self interest mm -hmm. is a tool used to to drive innovation, but ultimately, it's competition with self, with self innovation that drives it. If you only have self interest, mm -hmm. then and no competition, then you're not going to drive innovation. And innovation is why capitalism is good. If you don't have an innovation, then yeah, a self interested marketplace is not a good thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. And so that, that wraps up that, I think, in a nice tight, a nice bow. Um, uh, briefly want to go up to 1913 because, well, what happened in 1913, the Federal Reserve was created and it's a big influence on our society. 
I don't want to deeply go into the Federal Reserve and how banking works and um, the different trade Shocked that you don't. <laughs> well, no, because well, there's a reason. It's because I'm doing a whole episode just about that. And that's it's just and that's kind of my like my like one of my favorite things in economics is monetary mm -hmm. policy. But it's also it's a whole can of worms. I don't want to talk just about that with you because I'm doing a whole other episode about that. Um, but I think it's important to understand, you know, like like some like you know how that was. Because um, I mean, what I want to talk about next is just the story of the 20th century, right? And how at um, you know, and, and the governments of expansion of the role in the economy, you know, from um, over the course of the 20th century. 1913, you had the banking panic of 1907 um, because of a, of like this investment, this is a cornering, the stock cornering scheme for this copper company led to a bank runs, right? Led to the creation of the Federal Reserve to prevent, try to prevent systemic bank runs by being a banker's bank and providing mm -hmm. check clearing services between banks and, and loans during, um, and then the great depression. And see, that was the first kind of big, you know, that was our, our third central try at a central bank. And that's another thing we could, there's so much to talk about in economics, but we mm -hmm. could have talked about the whole 19th century battle, the, the whole century of the, the battle of, over the country's history between having and not having a central bank, but we well, could just watch Hamilton. Yeah. Alternatively, well, Hamilton doesn't tell the whole the, the, doesn't tell the whole story. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, it just tells the, yeah. it tells the story of the first central bank. Doesn't tell the story, but the it doesn't go into Andrew Jackson or after that what happened. Mm -hmm. But it's a whole history, a battle between whether or not we should have a central bank. But we ended up having a central bank. Didn't perform too well under um, yeah. It's during its first big big challenge, the Great Depression, right? And I think it's partly was partly the Fed's failure during the Great Depression in well just in in having a like just a mass allowing a massive wave of big failures to occur. Um, you could say there are other things that led up to that failure and so on. There's a, but that fundamentally because the Fed didn't do anything really to stop that, that is what led to the New Deal and fis and Keynesianism and fiscal policy um, stepping into our life and really the Great Depression fundamentally changed the relation between the economics discipline and um, American all not just American society, but societies across the whole world. Yeah. Um, yeah before it was much more of just like econ is what nerds do in college. And now it's like econ has like, it, I mean, it's the economy stupid. That's what people get elected or don't get elected on. Right. It used to be that, you know, the economy before the Great Depression, the economy wasn't something that states um, that presidents even were seen as that much responsible for I mean, to an extent. But it's like now we think of presidents and presidents and central bankers and, and together with Congress as being in charge of the economy, the economy being one big animal that the state is trying to control or direct mainly in the in the direction of growth minimal unemployment, minimal um, inflation, um, right? And that all started with John Maynard Keynes, um, who, who came up with all this counter-cyclical fiscal and monetary policy. Now, for those who know nothing of economics, here's the basics with counter-cyclical monetary and fiscal policy. It's a big term. This is basically what it is. Is counter-cyclical means against 
the, a variable that moves the opposite way of economic growth, right? So economic growth, economy gets bigger, more people employed, more stuff getting produced, right? If the economy, if, if counter-cyclical monetary and fiscal policy means this, con the economic growth goes down, fiscal policy, fiscal policy means increased spending or lower taxes, um, um, you know, looser fiscal policy just means, you know, the government getting into more debt, spending more, taxing less, right? That's counter-cyclical fiscal policy. Counter-cyclical monetary policy is the creation of more money at low, low, lent, at, lent at lower int interest rates spurred by a central bank, right? It was the Keynesian yeah. revolution. I think lent the simplest way to put it is that Keynes said, when economy is good, take money out. When economy is bad, put money in. And that Just goes for both. Canes for dummies. Canes for dummies, right? And that yeah. was a whole revolution, right? As I have a funny story, John Maynard Keynes was um, my sister and her husband, we were sitting um, in a bar one night. It was on my 21st birthday, actually. I, um, and we were, I, was, I, was, I was drinking beer with the three of them. And um, yeah, and basically I mentioned John Maynard Keynes somehow. And they like, they're like, who's John, who's John Maynard Keynes? And I was like, I was drunk. I was like, you don't know who John Maynard Keynes is? <laughs> but the dude is responsible for the entire, the, the economic framework we've been working on for, for like nearly the past 100 years. I don't know, but it's true. He was like, it truly yeah. was a revolution. Like Keynes fundamentally changed the way economists thought about the economy. And so I don't know how to form this in. So now I built up the hype about Keynes, gave yeah. a background. Now, Theo, I want you to fill, it, fill in the Keynesian revolution with other details about Keynes that you think are relevant. Go. Okay, so my favorite thing about Keynes, this is just like, I mean, this is just kind of fun trivia. It's not super important to the meat and potatoes of his economic theory, but he believed that there were animal spirits controlling the economy. And that is just, just the most, like, clearly a brilliant man right like just clearly had some just brilliant ideas i don't agree with all of them but he, he was very smart a lot of his ideas worked but he also thought that there were animal spirits controlling people and that when that was the reason why the the why the economy had the business cycle why the economy would boom at times and busted others and so all of his policies were meant to basically control our animal spirits that we have um mm -hmm. So that's just fun. That's just a fun thing to know about our boy JMK, uh, John Maynard Keynes. Um, but yes, yeah, so, I mean, like you said, uh, the counter counter cyclical stuff is uh, the big Keynesian thing. Um, you'll often hear. Uh, I think the first time I heard uh, Keynes mentioned was uh, in two thousand eight, when Barack Obama was running for president, and people were saying that. Uh, he had some neo-Keynesian policies, aka he was talking about a stimulus um, and uh, to, to help us get out of the 2008 recession. So I think for, uh, I'm assuming that most of our audience was alive and uh, roughly aware of what was happening in the world during the, during the 2008 recession. Um, but th there was a lot of Keynesian policy put into place during that to um, stimulate the economy, uh, all, all the big bailouts of the, the car companies, um, 
that that was all Keynesian policy. The, the, the fat stimmy checks that we've been getting uh, during COVID is very Keynesian policy of saying like, oh, hey, look, the economy seems like it's going to slow down. Uh, things are shutting down. We should definitely, there's some other things mixed in there with like also not wanting people to leave the houses. But uh, the idea of like the economy slowing down, we should inject money so that uh, we can keep it stable. And so basically Keynes, the whole concept of Keynes is that he thought that the business cycle was bad for people. So that, that's a normative idea, right? Uh, his positive ideas ha, are, are pretty rock solid, which is like, this is how we can change the business cycle, uh, where we can, if, if when it's low, we inject money, when it's high, we take money out, where people don't really disagree with him on that. I mean, I'm sure that some people do, but for the most part, people don't disagree that his positive predictions about what will happen when you take money in and take money out of the economy yeah, most are pretty correct. Most people say that, yeah, if you, if you add money into the economy, at least in the short run, you will have more spending, more yeah. demand. People, you know, and people will go out and spend more. And that will, you know, that was Keynes' whole thing was aggregate yeah. demand, right? That's the mm -hmm. big thing you associate with Keynes is he was like, if you ever hear in political speech, demand side and supply side economics, Keynesianism was demand side economics, this idea that in crisis, we need to boost consumer demand so businesses don't go under, so people can, because if you have people spending, you'll have people working, people being employed, that, that, that is, and that's how you should counter economic downturn. Yeah. But of and course- so the, the counter argument is that he was wrong normatively, that it's not good to actually control the business cycle um, because controlling the business cycle uh, hides signals basically, is the argument that uh, especially like an Austrian economist um, would make, is, which is about as far from Kansas as you're gonna get in our modern economic world. Uh, that they, they argue that the reason that we have prices is not just uh, it's not just like um, uh, it's not just to tell me how much I'm paying for something, but it's really uh, fundamentally prices have value in the way that they tell us what is valuable in the world. And so, an extreme an extreme Austrian economist would say like uh, during a hurricane, it's okay for a bottle of water to be thirty dollars because that uh, that properly communicates the scarcity of a bottle of water. Well, and that, um, that the idea would be then that you'd have, if, 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 if you could charge $30 for the bottle of water, then bottled water producers would see this $30 price tag mm -hmm. and they'll be able to hire and um, truck drivers to deliver massive amounts of water to where yeah. water has supply has decreased. And then, that, then yes, the short-term price of bottled water would be $30, but the, the fact of the water price going up in response to the hurricane, like signals scarcity, which mm -hmm. drives up price, which could drive up supply from outside suppliers, yeah. and then could increase the water supply in the community. The problem, yeah. So, yeah I was so gonna Austrians say, especially have an, take issue with the monetary side of Keynes, where he wants to adjust inflation or adjust interest rates uh, according with uh, counter cyclically to the business cycle. And they say inflation rates, or not inflation, interest rates are an important uh, price that shows uh, the scarcity of money. And if we don't know how scarce money is, then our decision-making is gonna be flawed and we're gonna lead to deeper and deeper recessions, even right. though we're trying to fix the business cycle. They say that, that, that's, that mm -hmm. it's worth it to take the lumps basically 
of a business cycle that will lead to recession and boom sometimes because it overall leads to more innovation and a more robust economy if everyone understands the true uh, value and scarcity of things. Yeah, I mean, and that that's the gist. So yeah, the, 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 so yeah, you're right. I think us from the 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 right, the far right spectrum on economics to the far, um, le- you know, like what the to Keynes. Keynes is the far. Yeah. Marx is the far this yeah. left, but you know, Keynes is like middle left. Keynes is a center left, exactly. You know, which, yeah. and it, it's all whatever you want to define it. Some mm-hmm. Marxists would tell you that John Maynard Keynes is right wing because they're Marxists. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, but there's a, there is a gist that, yeah, like um, that, that, that Austrians to Keynes would say that, yeah, during a recession, if you print stimulus checks, that will keep more people employed. That, you know, you like, 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 yeah. like during the pandemic, you print stimulus checks, you print that money, people will, uh, and the pandemic's a very spe- special type of recession. Mm-hmm. Any recession, you, you, yeah, you, that's I, where the pandemic's different because in the pandemic, people, the government wanted to incentivize people not to go to work. So they, they didn't really care about high unemployment, uh, which did result from giving out stimulus checks because they were like, that's totally fine. We don't want you to be there anyways. Right. But stimulus checks generally, they, they're like, Austrians wouldn't doubt that that increases employment in the short mm-hmm. term, meaning mm-hmm. that short run, some people do benefit from Keynesian policy, but they would say mm-hmm. that long run, this policy of constantly um, providing stimulus, particularly monastery stimulus in every single recession, um, just leads to more and more pathologies throughout the economy that, 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 it's, a lo- that it's almost worth it taking the brunt of a yeah. recession and the unemployment that the government could otherwise prevent in the short run because- It of, also leads yeah. to more, uh, like yeah. more of the bad practices that people dislike from true capitalists, aka the people with the capital, the people taking risks. Right. Because the more that uh, the government interferes in the market to um, tamp down every little recession and every little boom, the more capitalists say, okay, well now, uh, not only can I take more risks because I, I feel like I'm going to be protected if I do, but also I have to take more risks because I can't trust the business cycle to carry me on the natural boom because mm-hmm. the government's going to try and tamp it down. So I have to make very risky decisions, uh, which is directly what led to 2008 recession. I'm not saying that that was necessarily mm-hmm. because of uh, Keynesian policy, but it was definitely d- directly related to risky decision-making by banks that believed that the government would bail them out. Exactly. Um, I think and, that if we had had Austrians running our country, then the banks would not have made those decisions. They would not have believed that the government would bail them out. Mm-hmm. But that the question is like, it becomes an interesting moral question. You know, it's like, Austrians can say, well, long run, we'd be better off if we just let higher employment be the case. But what yeah. politician exactly. who, has, who has power and the ability to make unemployment better in the short run, make less people, that affects every, I mean, and this comes to, reminds me of another John Maynard Keynes quote that is on my laptop. Um, and I'm, not, I'm not a Keynesian myself. I don't know what I am. I'm a, I'm a heterodox uh, um, radical centrist, but um, if it, Keynes said, "In the long run, we're all dead." Mm-hmm. And I guess, it, 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 and that's really a big theme of Keynes. In the long run, we're all dead. It's like, yeah, you can make this argument that in the like, you know, long run, we'd be better off if we let people, you know. To be fair, the long run is defined as like ten years. So, yeah, yeah. 
I, I hope I won't be dead in the long run. That's <laughs> like true. You're right. I mean, different. Yeah, economists define define long run differently. To be Typically short, yeah. short run is defined as the next like one to five years. Yeah, when they peak, peak of short run. Yeah, it all depends on what context you're talking about. Yeah, I, yeah but and yes, in the long run, we're all dead. It's like yeah, if you're having great amounts of suffering, it's like you want to do something in the short run. And this kind of brings me to another point. Um, is it all depends when it comes to the government stepping in during crisis, right? You have to think, um, are they stepping in to who, are, in what way are they stepping in, right? Because if mm -hmm. they're stepping in to bail out banks to prevent collapse, whether that provides moral hazard for banks, right, to prevent them from taking risks. But I feel like with like oftentimes with fiscal policy um, interventions, it doesn't create as much moral hazard. Um, yeah, like with uh, the building of the national parks during the uh, New Deal. Right, right. It's just a puppy. That's, that's, that's a good example. Or, you know, stimulus check, granted stimulus checks, you have to, like, you, like, you have to do, like, either, like you know, there's taxing or taking on debt to, in order to fund those, and those can cause their own inefficiencies, you could argue. But generally yeah. speaking... I think that we've seen a lot of the, I mean, with just yeah. all the shortages that we've had recently, like, uh, mm -hmm. I think that we've seen the negative effects of extreme demand side fiscal policy which is just like oh we don't have things anymore <laughs> because like, people because people are because people aren't working because they dollars need but to sometimes work. i can't buy a mcchicken because mcdonald's doesn't have mcchickens anymore like you, or they don't because do, they don't have any workers here or the other thing yeah and that kind of makes me want to ask because i know you're a big ubi fan universal basic income mm -hmm. i'm a big ubi fan obviously like ubi only works when your society becomes this i mean we don't even know if it works. No society has yeah, done, yeah. done it yet. Um, it just, theoretically. Theoretically, it sounds great. And if your society becomes rich enough, you'd think it would be, but like has the, like, and, and it's, it's- I've become less enthused about UBI over the last year, seeing what the stimulus recently has done. Because you think that the stimulus from the pandemic is partly in part responsible for worker shortages and shortages of things and so on and so yeah. forth. Well, I think that, I think that, what happened was the stimulus created a labor market in which workers had way more um, power. And we just haven't, I mean, this is that short run. Like I, I believe in the long run, we're gonna get back to a situation where that everything's work, working out. But right now, I'm, everyone's, once again, this is gonna be another thing that people are gonna pull in five years and be like, yeah, this is a terrible person. But I think the workers have too much power right now. And the, like that, that power imbalance can go both ways. For most, most times, uh, employers have too much power and then that negatively affects people but i think right now workers have too much power and like i think it'll be brought back to a place where workers have a good amount of power and like i think it's great that like we can make advances for labor now while workers have this like excess of power but there's definitely people that are being hurt by that uh i mean like but, me not being able to eat a mcchicken sometimes but, not the, not the but, most awful thing but, but there it's, is, it's, like, exactly it's the normative question like if yeah if like it's if it's the, if these shortages you know are like with people like 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 are are for things that like oh like nobody's gonna care if there's a shortage in Ferraris being produced. Mm -hmm. You know, because it's all about who's consuming that and that's where you get to political yeah. economy. Yeah. You know, um but, but when there's a shortage in like bus drivers or like a the shortage in 
like there's all these things that are uh, fundamental to the way that our just society works that we're seeing shortages in. Or shortages um, um, in truck drivers. I know my father, mm-hmm. my father- There's is, a big shortage in truck drivers right my, now. My father um, works in um, water treatment. He, he sells the chemicals that municipal governments across the Midwest use um, to purify their water. Um, and um, he, he's been like dealing with multiple crises um, in like the past six, six months of like, of like municipal water plants all being on like the precipice of, of running out of chemicals to get yeah. water to their citizens because they literally <clears throat> can't hire truck drivers to drive yeah. the chemicals. Or harbor workers, where we have like these yeah. harbors with just massive backups and just boats sitting in the ocean waiting to be unloaded, because mm. there's not enough harbor workers to unload all the uh, boxes off the boats. Yeah, and you would argue when you say workers have too much power, you're like, well, yeah, I you're saying I basically think there needs to be a class of people that are hard enough for money that they need to be uh, to need to go to work to go drive a truck so that you know. Well, that they, or we innovate. Like the, yeah. I'm sure, that, and we've seen a ton of innovation, and right. some of this innovation is going to stick around. And I think that, like, mm-hmm. that's what that's why I'm I'm okay with there being imbalances, and there be there being times when workers have too much power, and there being times when employers have too much power. Because right now, workers are innovating in terms of mm-hmm. like they're saying, right, this is what we're going to accept. And in response, employers are having to innovate, and we're seeing more and more automation. We're seeing uh, uh, work from home being a, a, a thing that's become more and more. That, like I personally work from home. I love it. And a lot of people are able to do that because workers have more power now. And we're seeing people are working better from home. Uh, they're, they're more happy when they're working from home. They're more productive, all these things. Uh, and that, I think that's an innovation that's going to stick around as a result of this imbalance. And so this is where like uh, scarcity drives innovation. If you're, as a Keynesian, if you're trying to always make sure that there's never anything bad happening to anyone, then you're going to lose out on that innovation. Well, it's kind of like that, that was it Kelly Clarkson quote, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Exactly. Exactly. Right. If you're always trying to prevent anything that's uncomfortable or like unemployment, this, that, you know, um, um, businesses failing and people like being unemployed, you don't, um, you prevent good things that could happen that actually improve people's long-term circumstances from people responding mm-hmm. to these things. Yeah. And that's like, you know, um, it's like yes, like, uh, and that's why I know. I know. So I know two things you've told me before. You're like Ben. Two unpopular opinions that I hold is as I'm against banning child labor and I'm against and, and I'm pro outsourcing, right? And on the well, I'm 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 for banning child labor in the U.S. In the U.S., but, but in, not in, in not in foreign countries. Yeah, yeah. In, in in countries, my my point specifically is that like there's yeah. many countries where the education system is just like not providing more value than the value of going to go to work. And it's like, if that's true, the same reason I think that not everyone should go to college in the US. Like if the education is not gonna give you more value than going to work, then you should like, you shouldn't yeah. be going to school. It doesn't make right. any sense. Right, right. It, yeah, I, it, so in those countries, it's like, yes, it sucks that children have to work, but they are making the best of their circumstances. Mm-hmm. And if you and want then to-, to take that away from them, to say right. no, no, you no longer have this option. You're saying you have to pick the worst option. Right. Like, if you want, so it, like, don't regulate that system. Don't wish child labor away. Mm-hmm. You first need to like have investment and infrastructure in that society. Yeah. Such Create that, a good education system so that it makes sense for kids to go to school. Su- yeah. Such that the need of um, 
child labor is not not present because I mean like it's just such that such that parents can make enough money in those countries that they mm -hmm. can feed their children and their children can also then have have the, the also time. once kids start stop working parents incomes will go up because there'll be less labor in the market true true yeah and then on the more outsourcing points like yeah there's so much talk about every it seems like like it, it's a really unpopular thing to say that yes um yeah, that factory that um, moved, to moved to Mexico and went, had 20,000 uh, jobs be lost. It's hard to like, it, no politician would ever say, I think that was the right move. Was the right move that you 20,000 yeah. constituents all lost your job? Because in the long run, I'll tell you that yeah. it'll create more efficiency, cheaper products, and you'll can find jobs elsewhere. But yeah. there's an argument to be made that what well, people can move and can... Um, like, like improve and that will lead to innovation and even the innovation of like okay i'm gonna go move somewhere else and uh i think that what we're seeing not like there's uh and andrew yang talked about this uh mm -hmm. a lot uh which was that there is too much stagnancy in the u.s of people being unwilling to relocate and both being un unwilling to relocate to better job markets but also unwilling to re relocate to better real estate markets which i think we've seen a shift in this actually since the pandemic with uh, remote work where we've seen a lot of people like leaving uh, specifically the Bay Area and moving into uh, the middle of the country because they're like well I can work from wherever now um, but I think that like the that's one of the innovations that we're going to see that is going to come from uh, there being fewer manual labor jobs available in the middle of the country is people are going to go uh, move somewhere where they can find a, jo a job that fits their skill set and right. then it's another innovation that we're going to see from uh, real estate being too expensive on the edges of the country is we're going to see those people moving into the middle of the country and bringing their money with them. And then uh -huh. along with that money, bringing the need for more manual labor slash service jobs. Right, right. I mean, exactly. Like the whole idea of you losing your job, like could often be an indication that your country need that people need your services more in this other job. Mm -hmm. Um, and so at the, at the end of the day, it, 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 and like, it's, and net and, and when you can like replace people's jobs, for example, with automation, I mean, the, the net, um, the net wealth of your society is increased, less labor hours are required to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. it, it just becomes a distributional issue, right? Yeah. How That's we, where UBI comes in. Right. Because right. it fixes the distributional issue. And it gives people that just basic pad of being able to live and, um, yeah, the question, I, I mean, the thing about UBI is just introducing it. Will it create a shock to the economy? Yeah, you know, I think and, it will. That's like, that's where it's like, there is going to be, we're probably going to go through like five to 10 years of issues like we're having right now with massive shortages and whatever. It's like, but, do we but, have the guts to stick it out through that? Yeah, it's like, imagine if I was a politician, be like, all right, guys, all right, guys, here's the deal. There's going to be a lot of shit for the next five years if we put this UBI in. But in the long run, as our economy adjusts, I'm going to tell you, it's going to be great. Like after I'm yeah. president, it's going to be great. But I think it's a little bit easier gonna, of a pill to swallow because yeah. you are just giving people money. But, yeah. Like, business owners are for sure going to hate it. Like, right. That's the like interest my group that's like totally going to be aligned Like my cousin us. Jason, he's a roofer. He's a business mm -hmm. owner. And he hates the stimulus because, you know, because he knows, because um, he cannot find enough people to work with him um mm -hmm. to you know um to help him put roofs on houses 
you know, and he complains about that constantly. Every family gathering we, I go to, there's always mm -hmm. the perspective of the business and the, and the worker. And it's easier to be sympathetic. I feel like it's easier to be sympathetic just as a human to a business owner when they're like a regular person that like, yeah, like my cousin, Jason, who he didn't even graduate from college versus like, Jeff Bezos owns the corporation. It's a lot. Yeah. It, you, you know, and, a lot less. What you'll see is the, yeah. the media will like you'll. Well, I mean, I guess it depends what media you're looking at. Fox News is always going to uh, portray business owners as the guy that owns the handyman shop, and uh, MSNBC is always going to portray the business owner as Jeff Bezos and uh, Tim Cook and whatever. Like it's right. Uh, right. I mean, it's all it's all propaganda. Everything's propaganda. <laughs> Every everything's propaganda. Yep. Yep. And so let's, um, yeah. So, all right, we did some propaganda, speaking of propaganda, this is not, I don't know if this is good of a transition this is, but okay. you know, we've done our propaganda for JMK, um, you know, and, and, and how he, about how big of an influence he was. I, I don't know. I think that like, I mean, you think of the most famous economists ever, you think of, um, Hayek and Keynes. H Hayek is kind of like seen as the counterpart to Keynes from the same time period. Like the, yeah. Like the right-wing counterpart, but he didn't really have the guy that. Who, the guy who just got really unfortunate. Yeah, he didn't have that much influence on policy, though. He wasn't in like the chambers of power, whereas Keynes mm -hmm. was. But he's often like seen as a foil to Keynes. There's Keynes yeah. and Hayek, and then we mentioned Marx, Ricardo Smith. But I always think of Friedman. I, that's uh, what I'm bringing the, up. Yeah. Is the next... Um, I would say I'd kick Ricardo out. If I'd say the five biggest economists of all time, I'd think of, I'd think of, you know, Keynes. Um, I don't even know if I want to include Hyde, but let's just say the top four are definitely Marx and Smith. Cause Marx and Smith are like the left, right economy of early yeah. economics of early mm -hmm. economics. Right. But in terms of 20th century um, economics, the dichotomy really becomes John Maynard Keynes and Milton Friedman early mm -hmm. in the century. With the, the the first half of the century, with the new, with FDR, and I know Keynes was a British economist, but had heavy influence on F, FDR and the New Deal. Um, first half of the century it was all John Maynard Keynes, right? And then you led into the 50s, the 60s, and then the 1970s come along, and we have hot, we have double-digit inflation not associated with growth, and the Keynesian establishment in the economics um, field kind of like are caught, like caught not um with their predictions not really taking hold yeah just unable to explain what's happening unable to explain what's happening and in comes milton friedman libertarian but he's not on monetary issues he's not libertarian not austrian at all but when it comes mm -hmm. to fiscal no. very libertarian um but he comes in with monetarist economics which is considered a conservative economic doctrine and the fun fact about Milton Friedman, what pe he's associated with the Reagan era and, you know, just American 1980s conservatism, that economics, the regime mm -hmm. that kind of has led us um, to some extent to today. Although I, I like, you know, it's like a lot of the reasons. We're much more of a mix now. Well, a lot of the stuff since 2008 really doesn't, you can't like put pin that on one economist, but like. Yeah. Yeah. I would argue like Obama was very much a new Keynesian and then. Trump, I don't even. <laughs> what, what the fuck was he? We're still. Trump, Trump was a mercantilist. Like, like, yeah, mercantilist. Yeah. But anyway, but the fun fact about Friedman is Friedman like started as a Keynesian. Friedman himself, mm -hmm. when he was a young man in the New Deal, was full of John Maynard Keynes. Um, he actually designed, like, he was the principal, he was employed by the US government. He designed the modern tax system, like, with, with, with payroll taxes. 
and made it like as he he is probably the most responsible person for make it for for like making the government as as good as they are at, at taxing us that they are today mm -hmm. um, through the method of taxing us through our employers and so on. That's the, that's kind of the really ironic thing about Milton Friedman is he's known as this anti-tax Ronald Reagan conservative economist. But the man designed the tax system we use. If you're going to tax people, you might as well tax them efficiently. Like, yes, that's a good you don't point. Wanna, you don't want to lose money taxing people. Right. And so that's what Friedman did. And then so Friedman, you know, Friedman is kind of like the guy who rode, um, who, who kind of like, you know, started the era that, um, of, you know, of, of 1980s uh, neoliberal economics until today. Ben Bernanke, like in 2008, like, the response that the Fed did to the financial crisis, um, like, was in large part the, the, the entire playbook of Milton Friedman. Like, people use hyperbole just as, like, just as John Maynard Keynes is lionized by the left. A lot of, like, you know, people on the right, or even central bankers who are not even necessarily on the right, kind of lionize. Um, I think is that I don't, you know I've never used the word lionize out loud, but I mean, I mean glorify. Is that? That's, yeah, that's, yeah. How, that's what I think when I think of a lionize. You're making somebody a lion. You're glorifying yeah, sure. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Kate, like Milton Friedman is also glorified in his own way as being the guy that prevented the prevented us from having a second Great Depression. If it wasn't for his policy in 2008, like we would have had a Great Depression in 2008, right? So I just want you to talk about Milton Friedman because he's the next big figure. Um, what 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 was what were Milton Friedman's big ideas? Yeah, so I mean, I'm certainly personally more influenced by Friedman than by Keynes. I think that that's come out in all of my talk of innovation. Uh -huh. uh, right. That that was. Uh -huh. I mean, yeah, Fr Friedman's big thing is like it's just like let the business cycle be the business cycle, and uh, he he didn't go as far as the Austrians do of like never ever interfere in anything. Abolishing the Fed. Yeah. Yeah, but um, and just like let the interest rate. But yeah, whatever. Anyways. Austrians yeah. are their whole, whole own thing. Mm -hmm. But basically just uh, Friedman was all about innovation and saying, let's leave mm -hmm. the people who take risks to do what they do best and to decide when they're going to take risks. And let's like not interfere to make those risks seem better or worse. Let's like let them do what they're going to do. And then, and uh, to a large extent, I think that that worked. And I, I mean, any economic system is going to fail. Uh, because that's how the world works is it's not totally predictable. And if you build a system and never tweak anything, then it, it will fail. Like, uh, because the world's not predictable. Um, and also humans just aren't that good at building systems. Like as, as great and innovative as we are, uh, there's just too many variables. Um, so I'm not saying he's some unimpeachable genius or anything, but, uh, I think that certainly his, I, I really like his ideas about, um, allowing uh business people to do what they're going to do and allowing them to try and thrive and not really stepping in the way uh and just trusting that to drive innovation and drive growth in the economy uh and letting the economy economy take its lumps as it will uh not messing around with the interest rates too much uh, mm. that kind of thing i got you i would say like the biggest like academic contribution um Milton Friedman had was on the monetary end, certainly. Um, when it comes both with his like um, quantity theory of inflation, of quantity, quantity theory of money, which involves inflation, and then 
his um, analysis of the Great Depression and why it happened, as I said earlier, like basically economists accepted um, Milton Friedman's interpretation of why the Great Depression happened. And that is why they did quantitative easing. And that's why they responded to 2008 fully accepting Milton Friedman's view of why the Great Depression happened. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's his big contributions. And um, yeah, that leads us, and I mean, and I'll, I'll save QE, how money's created. I'll, I'll save all of that for my next podcast. So let's just fast forward to today. And um, that like basically um, we have like another 45 minutes left of our podcast or whatever. Let's talk about, um, well, first I want to talk, I want to talk, there's three more things I want to talk about. One of them being how economics is taught in academia. Um, and what do you think? And we're both products of that, you know, mm -hmm. go at, from Kent State, it, you know, university. We both learned economics. Right. Exactly. From KSU. And so we can both comment on like what we think was lacking, what we think could have been better, but what, what we also thought was great about the education um, and the whole like academic system around economics is the first thing that I want to cover. Second, I just want to cover like um, um, today's problems, like the, what you think are the biggest economic problems of the present day and what where economic economists disagree, where they agree, but policy isn't getting done. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then like, um, that actually th just, ju just really those two things. So let's start. And then, well, I guess the third thing would just be um, uh, what what do you think are the best like, like just recapping with I think the, the the best and worst thing about about economics as a discipline. So let's talk okay. about um, the whole discipline economics and the academic uh, how, and how it integrates itself in academic institutions, um, which are kind of like um, what's the word I'm looking for, but just um, what's the gateways to think tanks and government bureaucracies. Yeah. Um, like um, what, 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 like, what do you think about, what do you think could be better about the whole system in which we educate people about economics? So uh, I think that uh, there is, I think that uh, honestly, like, um, I so, so it's, I mean, I, I, even within Kent State, it depends like what professors you get, what like, uh, and obviously like depending on college you go to, whatever, mm -hmm. like there's gonna be different issues with how economics is taught. But if I were to just like take a step back and say broadly, what's the issue? I think that um, this is certainly something that I've noticed in my own, and that, like th this is why I've taken a step back from the, the poli-sci part of my education is because the way that we're taught economics really is very theoretical and doesn't deal with um, what's feasible with political capital. Uh, and so like, we're, we're all learning about like, oh yeah, this is the best way to do things. Uh, but like you said, like, who's going to tell their constituents, uh, Hey, trust me, like we're moving your factory to Mexico. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that that kind of thing, uh, is probably undertaught as like, uh, as a, as a barrier that that is a scarce resource. Political will is a scarce resource. And I don't think that's considered, en considered enough, um, in discussions of economics in school. Uh, something I think is really good. Uh, I, I think that the data side of it is, is really strong. Um, and just like we're, as, as we move forward and we get more and more uh, sophisticated with our approach to 
data and to understanding it and to um, building computer programs that are going to be better able to crunch through large amounts of data. I think that uh, it's really interesting that we can now get down to causality through data. Uh, and so I that, that's a strength of modern modern economics that we've, we've never really had before until last 40 years maybe of we can now like examine causality and we can we can now uh it doesn't have to be theoretical we can now prove causality because before it was all either theory or correlation and we couldn't actually sh show causality we have theories about what causes what we can never prove anything and now we can prove things i think that that will lead to much better models in the future much better theories in the future um and uh i think a really good example is the recent uh, Nobel Prize winner who uh, designed like the best systems for auctions that like the world has ever seen. And he did all of that based on like really advanced data. And obviously like that's not impacting most people's day-to-day -day lives. Like most people aren't engaging in sophisticated auction systems on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. But what that's used for is it impacting people's day-to-day -day lives in a big way, uh, which I think a lot of people don't realize. Like the fact that um, the way that uh, airwaves are purchased like uh to, to be able to like send radio signals is all based on an auction system that was designed by economists with large access to, to data and large access to understanding what really causes what and we're able to build much more sophisticated models that do a better job of bringing value so i think economists are beginning to step into a practical space where it's no longer sitting in an ivory tower with theory and it's like and also sidestepping politics where it's like okay i don't need to do like we don't need to affect macro stuff because we have just systems that we can build that people can use to make decision making better. Uh, I think that that's a cool path economics is going down. I agree with a lot of what you were saying there, Theo, about um, about 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 the whole um, economic system, education system. I think we are seeing a lot of great improvements in data that, you know, that we didn't have decades ago. I mean, when economy, it's interesting, you think about the whole evolution of the economics discipline, it like, like um, economists used to be in the, like the math was in the economics in at the beginning, but when you read Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations, it's not, it doesn't read like a math textbook. It's much more like a philosophy textbook than a, than a math mm -hmm. textbook. Um, you know, and describing word, using words and language to describe people's incentives and actions. But in our complicated modern world, economics has become more and more a mathematical discipline. Where I mean, yeah, I mean, and I and I just don't love math enough. Well, I love economic philosophy and could read that all day. I just don't love the hard work of churning through data, building regression models, finding instrumental variables, and and um, and you know, like like I just don't take any joy out of math. It's something I can do. It's something. Um, I, what, what do I compare it to? It's like, you know, I could, um, it's like um, sprinting. I like running, but I don't like sprinting. I can do sprinting. I can appreciate sprinting. Um, I can understand spr that, that, that sprinting um, could be good for my health in some ways, just like math is good for the health of my mind, but I don't love it. I'd much rather jog or rock climb or backpack than I would practice my sprinting ability and become a better sprinter. Um, so like, I just don't love the mathematics part of it, but the mathematics is certainly, um, I think a big part of how economics is truly improving our world in many wonderful ways is, is it can make the world more efficient and we can understand 
decision-making on all kinds of facets of human life, everything from dating apps to, um, you know, auctions, as you were saying, to, you know, decision-making to, to just the world of finance and, and, and all kinds of different trades. And there's are some benefits in just understanding how decisions are made and how to um, develop decision-making apparatuses and, and get almost games that people participate in. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like, um, and I think that's where, like, like on understanding data, economics has, has made, the whole discipline has made massive strides in the past couple of decades. That's for sure. But in terms of what, and, you know, and I think the, the, the system, I think and in terms of what I most, I'm going to talk about what I like about my economics education, and then I'll talk about what I don't like. But just what else I just really loved about what the education was for me is that it really, it did, it, it teaches you to think and understand complex systems and variables and how, yeah. you know, and it gives you an appreciation for complexity. And it teaches you how to think through step by step all the different mechanics in a process. And it humbles you. Um, I, I truly think that the economics discipline is a humbling discipline. It makes you realize how um, much you don't know um, when, it, when it becomes, it, take, it, when it takes hundreds of hours just to understand a, a system that seems pretty simple with not that many variables. In order to prove causality, it takes a lot, a lot of information. Mm -hmm. I think it gave me humility and it taught me how to think on my feet and think carefully. Um, in terms of what's wrong with the discipline, not it, like I agree with what you said um, in terms of and uh, in, in making people aware of political um, limitations, right? Um, we need to understand something, or this is theoretically great, this policy, but um, we need to understand with some policies, well, what can we reasonably expect political actors to do in this situation? Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, um, I think we, like, because an Austrian or a Marxist economist could, could give you a layout of, well, this is the perfect way for humans to behave and for the government to behave. Um, but you have to ask yourself, and you could give a, quite the model, the theoretical model to demonstrate that, but you have to ask yourself, um, when you design this system, what can we, how can we reasonably expect people in our own society to act under this new system? That's the essential question. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really hard to answer because when it comes to theoretical policies that have never been tried, like UBI, you, you don't, you're weak on the data end of it, right? Because it's yeah. never been tried at a wide societal scale. Um, you could argue that like, that like, um, uh, like Alaska had their dividend from the oil companies there, but that's not, that's also not a constant like, like um, uh, UBI, right? It's mm -hmm. contingent on, um, and like uh, on, on, on the sales from, from, I believe their oil up there. But yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that's important. I would just say generally that if I could, there's one big overarching complaint. They like, um, I guess it's two different, I have two more complaints. One of them has to do with my, my education itself. And the other complaint has to do with more so graduate school and journals and the whole um, system of publication and economics uh, that I've done. Some I think the system of publication is pretty messed up in most academic settings. But. Right. So I guess that, that critique could be applied, not just to economics, but all kinds of academic settings. So I'll talk about my personal first um, would just be that, I think a lot of times when it comes to macro 
um, we're given these frameworks to look at the world and, um, and, and, and we just be all right, we're, we have this objective, this objective, and these are the incentives. Let's talk about the system. Let's talk about how to optimally maximize this objective, right? Mm-hmm. When it comes, for example, to the Fed and minimizing inflation to 2% and keeping minimal unemployment, I think are there, th- th- those are great goals. Those are um, for, for kind of self-evident reasons. When most people are employed, most people aren't engaging in crime, their families are fed, there's stability, there's meaning in people's life. That's why we want low unemployment. There's low inflation, you know, people can have reasonable expectations about prices and people can not lose all their savings, you know, really quickly. If it's only 2% inflation annually, you could plan your life out and you can make decisions based off of that, right? So those are, are sensible objectives, but I just kind of, and, and to be fair, I feel like in any, to any extent to which the education felt lacking to me, I made up for my own research and time. Yeah. But I just feel like the average economic student would benefit rather than having to take core classes in anthropology or, you know, or like, like exercise. How the earth works. Or how the earth works. You know, you take classes on like the history of the economics discipline or the history of banking Mm -hmm. or the philosophy of banking and money creation. So like students aren't just given these objectives and this world that, oh, yeah, that this is what we're supposed to do as economists with machines yeah. just trying to churn out. No, there's not enough thinking about normative. Not, uh, not enough normative thinking. I would agree. I got some of that in my public economics class, but not, not that not much, you know, that like uh, you don't question the ideology or the framework in which you're working. And that's not to say I think that you'll get a lot of that in the class that you're in the senior seminar class. There's, there's a lot of normative thinking in there. There's some normative thinking, I'd agree. Um, but like, I think just generally overall, though, there could be more. And I mean, you know, it's interesting, though. Um, yeah, it's, 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 I'm not saying that there's, there's like, there, there are obviously problems with every ideology. Mm-hmm. No, no system is perfect. But I, wish, I just wish people, in summary, I mean, I, like not to push any ideology. I just kind of wish eco- economics majors would become politically conscious that they're operating within an ideology, mm-hmm. right? Uh, yeah, I, the I, I, thing. I don't like people who say that I'm non-ideological. I make all, all the economic policies I suggest are based on the evidence and experience and not, not, not ideology or doctrine. Well, it's like, no, ideology, all that is, it's, it's a set of values you have and everybody yeah. has values. Yeah. There are things we're valuing and there's even if you're like a total iconoclast and you don't agree with anyone else about any of your values. Uh, I mean, a, you're probably wrong, but B that's still an ideology. It's just not an ideology shared by anyone else. Right. Exactly. And so that would be my complaint about the education. at Kent State is I wish more history, more normative stuff, less Kent core classes. I don't, it's not like I object to any of the classes I've had to take. I think it's a good mix of mathematics and, um, and, and, and intermediate micron theory and whatnot. It's more so that I would just take out core, cla- I, I, core classes at the university. Core t- like, I, I think universities should get rid of all their core and elective and just like, you could become well-rounded on your own time, okay? I don't want to mm-hmm. pay to be, you to be well-rounded. It's just like, if, if, like, um, if anything, like, like, you know, you, 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 you change 120 credit hours down to 90 credit hours because I know like, like just typically, you're typically like with your 120 credit hours that are required, 40 are like 
you have 40 elective, 40 core, 40 for your major. For like the economics major, I wish it would be more like no core, no elective, but like you, um, you could up the, uh, you could up, you could have all the same classes, but add history, add required history or philosophy classes. Cause I think that's important to know to replace the core classes and still have room left for like econ majors to take more mathematics classes, like to become yeah. a data analytics double major or minor, but like leave that room in the schedule. There's plenty of econ classes that I like wish I could have taken, but I couldn't just cause like, oops, I graduated, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I think the, the, and the whole system behind core and elective classes, it's just to, to make certain professors more money. That's it. Professors like who have a lot of clout in the, in, in the education hierarchy, um, you know, can vote, can like, can, can like say that it's essential for students to take their class to be well-rounded mm -hmm. and they, they make students pay money to take classes that they don't need to take or, or want to take. Um, mm -hmm. And so I don't like the core and elective part of our, um, of our like uh, university system. Grant, granted, like students could, could, can do have some opportunity to take elective classes. I think electives are cool. Because, electives because, are cool. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, you get to like kind of cross pollinate a little bit with other majors and yeah, not just against, like, yeah, elective classes. If, yeah, if anything, I feel like, you, you, yeah, I mean, to save students money, you could potentially make a degree four years. And I've been, I chose to stay for three and a half years. And there's a lot of economic reasons for that. But like, in terms of like, you could just have like, sit like rat, like, like 60, the 60 credits required for economics, adding in history, philosophy classes, 30 credits open for uh, electives. That's kind of how I would mm -hmm. have designed, how I would optimally design my economics major. So if a student wanted to save money, they could graduate and do everything in three years. But if they wanted to get a, they could use all their electives for a data analytics minor, or they could take fun electives, or they could take another year of fourth year if they could afford it. That's mm -hmm. kind of how I would design that system differently. Um, in terms of the publication system, I mean, do you, you, you sound like you know about that. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm assuming you you take the same issue with it as I do that more sensational work is published over less sensational work. So if you are coming out with a study that proves the already existed or that, that gives more evidence for the already assumed conclusion, uh, no one is going to publish that because it's not interesting. Like if I came out with a study tomorrow that was like, I was giving evidence for why people like people desire money. Mm -hmm. No one's going to publish that. And I, yeah, and I kind of see the reason why, because it's like, does, do we really need another article out there in the world about how people desire more money? And so that's, that's really not the problem. But the problem is that, and, and it's not even a problem for like the more extreme, like if someone came out with a study and they had evidence that people didn't desire money, that'd be a pretty interesting study to read. Mm -hmm. I want to read it. But the problem is then the meta analysis, I think is the real issue where you come in with meta analysis and people say, okay, well, let's take a look at all the studies that have been published and see what they say when mm -hmm. you add them all together. And you don't take a critical eye at why, which, why studies were published versus other studies. Um, then you end up getting very extreme results of your meta-analysis, but your meta-analysis sounds so convincing because it's like, oh, I've looked at every study in this field done over the past 10 years. Look at this. It shows this, this crazy thing that no one would have ever expected. But really, it's because the sensational things got published, the things that confirmed already existing beliefs didn't get published, and now your meta-analysis says that like no one wants money <laughs> and obviously that's a bad example I don't, like whatever but 
that that's the gist of it is that extreme things get published not extreme things don't and then meta-analysis takes all of the because I, I trust for the most part economic researchers to like put it in their study like this is this is this needs to be repeated all this different stuff like this is the exact conditions under which we found this extreme finding the meta-analysis isn't going to do any of that it's just going to say we added all the numbers up through them in a computer and this is what we got mm-hmm. yeah it, uh, yeah completely agreed there i think that's one that actually wasn't the problem i was thinking of when i thought of the publication process but that's definitely true and it's true of every um social science discipline because mm-hmm. um, anything you learn about like for people who haven't taken a statistics class or people who took a statistics class but didn't like take away any big morals morals of the story from their statistics class i think one of the big morals of the story with statistics class is oftentimes you can study you run enough studies you'll show an effect that comes about just merely from random chance. Yeah. That's how, that's how statistics, uh, you know, can div- like, um, that's how you measure like, 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 like the significance of a statistical result is by the percentage chance that it occurred randomly. Um, like for example, when we say um, a statistical result has a 95% um, it like, exists at a confidence interval, like 95% significance. The idea would be like, let's say if that's a statement was that. Or it has um, a p-value of 5%. Uh, yeah, a p-value of, yeah, 5%. But basically the idea, like I'm trying to think of an example. Like, um, let's say that um, like, like somebody, um, like some economist was trying to analyze two states. One state that had a lockdown, um, let's say South Dakota, one st- that did not have a lockdown, South Dakota, versus like a similar state to South Dakota that, that did have a lockdown. Like Florida actually had a lockdown earlier in the pandemic, um, even though DeSantis is known for the opposite of that now. Um, of a being, you know, but early on he did go along with the lockdown a little bit later. Than I remember that. I was in Florida during the lockdown. It's yeah, right. And so let's say like, um, and certain like obviously South Dakota. Um, Florida, different states and popula- different population centers in many ways, but let's say economists are trying to control for these things and they're trying to see how the, ver- the independent variable X, uh, like, a bi- like whether or not a lockdown was issued ha- and the effect that it has on the dependent variable Y, um, the number of sm- small business closures, right? And a confidence interval would basically tell you like a 90, like, like, like let's, say, and let's say the result that your study churned out after trying to control for all these different things is that, you know, um, that float that Florida's really brief lockdown like still led to a, a 4% decrease in the number of, 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 of restaurants compared to South Dakota with a one, like a, with a plus and minus 1% confidence interval. And what that essentially would mean is that nine, that if you were, this was to happen randomly, Nine, well, this, if we were to do this study surveying small businesses, 95% of the time we would get a result that shows um, like between three and 5% decrease mm-hmm. in, um, in like, like, like if. Um, three to 5% increase in closures. Right, right. Increase in closures, right? But that means that 5%, like, but that means that, like, like, um, but then, but like, I, I think I, I said this wrong and I'm being, I'm going off this on the spot, but 
I, I put my said part of that wrong, but the point is 5% of the time, but, but like what the, what the other part of it, 5%, just a 5% p-value means that, um, and I, I'm, I'm using this to make a larger point that hopefully the audience will understand. So stick with me here. But is that, let's say we live in a hypothetical We're already world. like an hour and 45 in. So like if they don't stick with us, it's kind of okay at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's say there is no effect um, on, uh, let's say lockdowns have no effect on small business closures. The, a, a, like a less, like a 5% P value means that, um, like if, if that's your standard, means that when there is no effect, 5% of studies would show an effect um, to this level of like mm -hmm. this level of an effect, a 4% decrease. 5% of studies would show a 4% decrease in business closures just because of random chance. Now, yeah. when you have thousands of economists throughout the country doing studies on COVID, right? Uh, like the effect of, let's say, of, um, of, of like lotteries, on, like, like vaccine lotteries on like vaccine uptake or this other thing. If you have thousands of people doing these studies and 5% of the time, a 95% like, you know, like, um, like, um, like, 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 like 5% of the time an effect would be shown, then you multiply this with thousands of people, you're going to have dozens and dozens of studies that show an effect. And those studies that show any effect get published um, much more than studies that show no effect. Because what, what young researcher gets a lot of attention from publishing a study saying, hey, uh, this thing, it doesn't affect anything. Like, that's not interesting, right? Yeah. But saying, oh, I, I've, I, I, I've found an effect between this thing and this other thing. That's interesting. That gets published. Mm -hmm. And it is for this reason that sensational stuff gets published. Yeah. But that's one problem with the um, publication process. It's hard to fix. Uh, another problem, too, I would just say is just like the in, I would say the inbreeding, econ like academic inbreeding. Keynesians only, neo-Keynesians only interacting with neo-Keynesians and publishing in neo-Keynesian journals. Austrians only ever interacting with Austrians and public publishing in Austrian economic journals and so on and so forth um, is like, there's just like, like people stick with it and particularly with macroeconomists, they stick within their framework and like people with different frameworks don't interact with each other. People just stick with talking to people that speak in their own language. Yeah. And when you have certain economic journals that are journals for a particular school of thought for economics, certain ideology, you know, like, like the people that are going to be the most successful are going to be, be the people that replicate that ideology. Yeah, the most uh, extreme people who rec replicate it too. Right, exactly. And that way, like, um, and it's kind of the opposite of the sensationalization problem is like, it's just the replication problem of like the, the same ideology in particular being replicated. Um, and so that's kind of like, I think, another problem. Um, I think there needs to be more cross interaction with people of different views. And yeah. I don't, again, I guess I don't know how, we have limited time left. I want to go to the last thing I wanted to talk about, but I don't know how to facilitate that, but it, it needs, there needs to be different facilitation there. I don't know. 
Last thing I wanted to ask you as we close are what do you think are the biggest economic problems facing the U.S. particularly and humanity today? And what do you think should be done about them? And um, tell me whether or not the things that you think should be done about them are kind of broadly agreed upon across the economics discipline versus the things that you think should be done that are only believed by a minority within the discipline. Okay. Well, I think probably the biggest next hundred year problem, like I'm, I'm thinking about in that perspective, like what's the thing that we're going to do? Like we have to answer in the 21st century, just like uh, in the 20th century, they had to figure out what, what the heck is going on with central banks. Right. I think that we have to figure out uh, how to respond to an economy that uh, is just shifting for the, the um, labor function is just, or the production function is just shifting further and further away from labor. Uh, and so for those of that are not familiar, the production function basically says, uh, what is the bigger factor or to what degree are labor and capital factors in production? And uh, we've just seen this continued shift towards capital as being the important thing. And that looks like automation a lot of the time that looks like just better machines, whatever, where uh, it becomes less and less important to have skilled labor. It becomes less and less important to have more laborers, whatever, because the capital is becoming more and more important. Um, and as that's happening, we've seen production go up and production going up is great. It's like, woohoo, production is going up. But the big question that economists have to answer now is, okay, but normatively, or not even normatively, values-wise, we don't really care about production if people aren't getting that value, if that value is not going to, like, actual people. Uh, so, like, if, if it's, like, the capital that becomes more and more valuable and everyone's like, yeah, capital, whatever, like, that's not helpful to day-to-day -day people. So, what can we do as, like, should we stop that shift? Should we attempt to shift value, or shift the production function back towards labor? I personally would say no, um, but there's certainly lots of people that would say that. They would say we need to slow down automation. These are the people saying we need to bring factory jobs back to America. This is the big Donald Trump thing. It was like, let's shift, let's shift the value back towards the labor side of that. Um, and then there's other people that are like, oh, let's just kind of figure it out. And that's kind of what most people are at. Right? Is like, there's not, they're not offering solutions. They're just kind of like, well, it sucks to be poor and have to work in a factory. Just, or, or just just redistribute stuff or yeah and then the or, third option is redistribute which which is uh where i am at personally there's also right the now. socialist option of the workers owning the pieces of production the capital you know yeah but they don't really want to take on that risk yeah they don't want, it's, it, it's a big risk there's a lot of violence yeah. could potentially be involved no i mean like the workers don't really like, it, like, like they say they say they want to take on the means of production but like historically they don't. They want the government the, to take on the means of production. Right. Exactly. It's never actually the. That's a good point about socialism. It's never, it, like, a, and not one of those cliche points about socialism. Like socialism doesn't work because you eventually run out of other people's money. It's like no. It's like socialism doesn't work because it ends up not being really socialism. It, it, it doesn't end up because it's not. I mean, this is not that cliche. Like it's, it's, it's a, a very special type of person that's willing to take on that much risk. Yeah, to like, run a business. Right. Like, that's a that's a very special type of person. Exactly. Not, not, not saying that they're morally better than anyone else, but like most people just don't want to do that. Most people want to take their nine to five check and yeah. go home. The problem with the whole it's never real socialism has never been tried. It's it's not because it's like 
it's the fact of the matter is because most workers don't want to actually own the means of production and deal with all the things that come with the the, the means of production yeah. being owned. Um, yeah, ask like, anyone who's ever started a small business, like, were you working reasonable hours and being paid well? And they'll say no. That's because it's really hard. <laughs> like, you have to work insane hours. You have to be okay with not being paid well to, to take on all of that extra risk, to do all that extra work. And at the end of the day, most workers don't want to do that. Most workers don't want to work longer hours and make less money in order to just, like, have a piece of the pie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, like, yeah, I, 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 I'd agree. Most people just want the, also the idea of like having your income go up or down depending on what the profits of the company are. Most workers would rather have a predictable income. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a, obviously like if you told me like Ben, would you rather have sixty thousand dollars a year versus anywhere from thirty to three hundred thousand? Um, like if I could have like a reasonable of distribution on the likelihood of 30,000 versus the likelihood of 300,000, I might be able to take up that, that range, but it, it's hard to logistically um, facilitate. And like, yeah. I know like and a you lot don't of, have a family to support. Like, right. I don't <laughs> have, you a, could easily live on $30,000. Exactly. That's not a problem. That, that's not, that decision's the 30 to $300,000. So long as like my expected value, the, like is above $60,000, like more than half the time, Mm -hmm. uh, like I'm going to take the 30 to $300,000 option, but like people supporting families, they want predictable income that they can predict that they can, they can, they can, they can use to spit to pay back their mortgage at a predictable, predictable rate mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And if you actually own the means of production, you deal with unpredictability. Yeah. That's what the, that's the risk that the capitalist yeah. takes on. Um, yeah, or like, what if you, yeah. like you own the means of production and then you get hurt and then you can't do it. Like, uh, I, I had a friend whose uh, dad owned a machine shop and mm -hmm. recently his dad like became injured in such a way that he could no longer own the machine shop. And then he's just like, SOL, shit out of luck. Like, sorry, right. dude, <laughs> there, mm -hmm. there's no, like, there's no injury package for you, whatever. Like you owned a business. It was good for a while. Now you don't. And that's just, that's the reality that comes with owning a business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know that, um, yeah. I, yeah, I know like a lot of like Marxists love to point out like examples where like like worker owned co-ops work. And mm -hmm. there, there are examples where it works that people are willing to take on that risk. Because you've just, gathered together a lot of those rare individuals who are willing to take on that risk. Right. But can but we expect that Marxist, in every industry yeah. across America? And no. you have to ex expect that every person is that type of person. It's like, yeah, can you get 30 of those people together? Sure. Sure. Can yeah. you have everyone be that kind of person no absolutely not <laughs> right i think that's a good point there as to so at, at like you know um so I, I guess the solution to machines having a lot higher yields than than workers um is not to have the workers own the machines um but the question then becomes um uh like, 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 what do we do about it? And, and I think your favorite solution, like, the, is UBI, right? Yeah. At, at this time, still a UBI I still person. think that that, in the long run, is gonna we're gonna have to figure out something along those lines. I don't know specifically. I mean, I, like you said, the the data is just not there to be able to say like what the best system of UBI would be. But I think that, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, as the production, and, unless there's, I mean. 
once again, I don't want to box myself in like Malthus here. There could be some innovation that happens where we're able to like find some new profession that's like super labor intensive or whatever, and like give us a little bit more life. But eventually, you know, what's going to happen in that profession too is we're going to figure out a way to automate it. But, um, so I don't want to box myself in and say like, this is like necessarily going to happen because we could always like find some like amazing new efficient way to use labor. But uh, mm-hmm. as it stands, I think that the current path that we're on, uh, mm-hmm. Andrew Yang always talks about this, the, 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 the three biggest professions in America right now are retail workers, truck drivers, and call center workers. And all three of those professions are expected to be automated away almost completely in the next 20 years. Like, yeah, there's, already, there's already examples of each of those things that are completely automated, like Amazon store that has no workers. Um, there's uh, self-driving cars and trucks, obviously, already. They're not like mm-hmm. fully ready to hit the road, but they will be very soon. And then uh, AI that drives call conversations. So like, as soon as those things go away, like you just have all these workers on the streets where it's not, it's not that the production function shifted a little bit. It's that it's shifted completely. Labor's not there anymore. It's like, and, you're, you're almost like, instead of a Neo-Malthusian, well, you're not a Neo-Luddite because you don't have the same solutions as the Luddites, the people mm-hmm. that burned down the machines. You would have been, but you would have been like around the people, you would have took like, it's, it's as if the you're around the Luddites, the people that, like burn down the machines that replace their job. Like, guys, 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 this is not the solution. The solution is universal basic income. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah but exactly. that's what you're telling people yeah, the, nowadays. The, that, yeah. The machines will replace your jobs like that. And yeah. Yeah. Some people will be able to be retrained, whatever. But I also think that it, it can lead to a lot of cool innovation to, um, mm. I mean, I place a high value on art. Right. Uh, I, I love art so much. And I think that it could lead to a lot of innovation in that and in, because we just have a lot more people who are free to be artists and yeah, sure. You're going to like mm-hmm. run into some, but like, so I, I believe, I believe that businesses will be able to innovate to within, I mean, it's not going to happen instantaneously like we're seeing right now, but business, businesses will eventually be able to innovate to uh, take care of any labor shortages that happen as a result of UBI. And then mm-hmm. people will innovate to find new ways to create value because people like creating value. Um, Right, And so like, that's where I think like art is a great example of that. There's like all these people that are starving artists and they like have to like work like these menial jobs that suck and they don't like and take time away from their actual work. Right. Yeah. But like, why not just give those people like, I mean, they'd still be starving artists. They still wouldn't have very much money, but at least they could spend all their time on their art. <laughs> you know? Right. They could actually be doing something productive with their life yeah. um, after they're unemployed. That's really interesting. Yeah. That's not what I would, I mean, yeah, I guess I understand the problem, but it's just like, you know, like, I don't know, that, that, that kind of like a neo-Luddite attitude, like, like, like towards fearing automation. Just I don't fear like, automation, to, to be clear. Like, you, you, I, you, you, I, fear, you, you see it as very, the biggest problem, though. I'm the, very the next pro-automation. Century. I just think that, like, yeah, I mean, I, th- I yeah. think that right. problems are something to be solved. It's not something to fear. Right. Like, I don't, I don't fear problems. I, I think that we just yeah. need to find solutions. Right, to right. You don't, fear is the wrong word. Yeah. yeah. I I, I'm, pro, I'm pro-automation, very yeah. much so. Right. The only reason I'm not like so concerned about automation is our number one problem, which is because it, like it, it's not based on evidence. I don't I haven't thought about it enough. It's just because the argument of fearing automation, it kind of like almost I almost think of it the same way as I think of fearing overpopulation, as it's a concern that's perennially brought up, but humans always just find a solution around it. 
That doesn't mean we will find a solution around it this time. We do find a solution, but typically after lots of violence is what, because people lose their jobs and then they do a lot of violent things and then we are forced to find a solution. So I think it would probably be better if we found the solution first. And we've never done that. And so that if we don't find the solution first this time, we can expect massive amounts of violence in your eyes. Yeah. I got I mean, you. I don't know about massive, but like, like probably not a civil war. Amounts, but there will be, there will yeah. be riots. There will be like, similar to what we saw um, with labor in the coal mines when they were being replaced uh, and the, 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 coal, the coal unions were being, uh, mm-hmm. like there were just straight up wars in the, like, in the mines of West Virginia. Like, I, I think we can expect that level of violence where mm-hmm. it's like, just people are like, no, I'm gonna, like, we're not gonna lose our jobs like this. Right, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, like, yeah, like, like people do, yeah, do lose their jobs. Um, it does cause lots of calamity, not just material, but e- emotional calamity because the people lack meaning in their lives when they don't have mm-hmm. their jobs. And that's my one concern with UBI is you can, you can argue that, ben, well, Ben, if we have a UBI, people will never be that miserable. They'll never be that violent because they'll still be able to put food on their care on their table. You have universal health care, afford that with a rich society, we eventually get there. They'll have food, they'll have health care, they'll have housing. They'll be fine, right? There's that view that they'll be fine in that sense. But I also think that people. Um, to, to be clear, I'm personally not pro universal healthcare just because I think that it, uh, it it messes up economic signals too much. I think that our our, our current system also does that, where it just hides pricing. Right, um, right. I'm much I'm much more for a system that just has transparent pricing and gives people the money that they need to do that. I don't think right. that giving actual products and services to people is good. I think that giving resources to, uh, to, to make decisions. I want people to be I, able to make decisions. I, I'm kind of, uh, yeah, I'm of, see when it comes to like just general, and that's why I don't really fit, feel like I myself fit into left-wing or right-wing economics. My more so thing is I want to end special privileges for um, corporations and the well-connected lobby, you know, with their lobbyists. That's kind of a left, left-wing thing, but and I, and I want to redistribute some stuff like in the form of universal basic income. I believe in some redistribution of wealth, and I believe in curbing corporations' ability to use the state as a bludgeon of their own power. Simultaneously, I'm not really the biggest fan of government problem, programs or state control of everything. I'm much more just on the, um, but I, believe much, I believe much more in the government's capacity to uh, redistribute and, and sometimes regulate than I do in its capacity to um, control industry and that's a whole nother discussion but yeah, yeah i was going to say with ubi though it's just like if people are well fed but they don't have a meaningful job or life um then they could still be very violent and very and, and, yeah. and, and succumb to extreme ideologies and search for meaning and so there that's i don't i, I, I certainly it's another bridge to cross certainly i don't think ubi solves the entire problem i'll say that as no. much um yeah and so that's, there's, that's that. Um, yeah, that's, that's a good, that's a good, yeah. I, like, it's interesting. Cause I think most people like, I don't know, would say like, say, I mean, not, not most people, but a plurality of people when they would say the biggest problem of this century, they'd say climate change. Um, why, why I'm not you, super worried about that. I think we have the solutions already. It's just a matter of corporations implementing them. Yeah. I think it's, a, well, it's, a, yeah. I mean, so I think like, nuclear power is something that we've been afraid of just like on a fear basis alone for a long time. I think that's a big solution. 
I think that uh, just like getting things to become like, there's a like big difference between having the technical solution and having it be something that's ready to be accepted by society. But like we have technical solutions where we could just like cool the atmosphere. Like we have that technology. People are afraid of it because they're like, what if we mess it up? But whatever. But I mean, it's been tested a lot. It, it, it's, uh, it's, it's gone through a lot of rigorous testing to the point where scientists are pretty convinced that that would work as like a last minute Hail Mary. It's, so like, that's why I'm like, yeah, we can cool the environment. It like, that's interesting. You so that's where I'm like, yeah, it's a problem, but like, it's a problem that like, if need be, we have like the extreme solutions for it uh-huh. already on, on deck. Like they're there, they're proven, they're tested. You know, that, that's funny that you bring that up because like I've never like heard somebody so confidently say like, look, governments do anything, do, don't do anything. At the end of the day, we can control the weather, the climate, but you know, with... Um, I am a Jew, so I, I know something about that. Yeah. For, you might have I, to cut that bit. <laughs> no, no, but no, we don't because you're the Jew, you're the one who brought it up. I just said yeah. we could control the weather. I was yeah. not saying anything about your Jewishness. Yeah, this yeah. is going in the podcast. <laughs> cool, um, also, cool. you make jokes all the time about Jews yeah. controlling the weather. Like, like, like Theo, if, if you guys didn't know audience, um, Theo, when we, you know, whenever we're walking outside and it's raining, somebody complains about the weather. Theo says, Hey, well, you're insulting my people because you know, the Jew controlling that weather. And it's yeah. a funny, it, I, I don't know. It, it, it's, I, a good it's, bit. it's a good bit. I think it's a harmless joke. But yeah, so um, yeah, uh, climate change is the thing. But like, yeah, hopefully like that, I, didn't, I, yeah, I don't know how much confidence to put into that ability of- I'll, uh, I'll send you some studies later. I, I really appreciate that. I'll put that, those studies in the doobly-doo, the link below, in, in the, I think nice. in the- um, in the uh, description below if you send them to me later mm-hmm. I will bring them up and so my audience can also read those studies yeah and um, I think that's um, I, I want to kind of like like I guess um, as a last question because we are at the end here I think we've had a gr- lot of great discussion I think this has been a great conversation um, what would you say to um, our audience here whether it's mm-hmm. five or a hundred people um i'm going to share this with both my micro econ classes of 170 people that i tutor that i si nice. for um i don't know if you knew this but my sister's in one of those classes oh i didn't know that so i didn't, I, even, know you, I, yeah. I didn't, I didn't even know you had a sister i do have but a sister for these 340 people in these micro classes that are clearly listening to this podcast to the very end two hours in still listening still listening what is the big takeaway you want said micro students to get from this podcast or anybody the, listening? The big takeaway is that economics is so much more than uh, just how like governments deal with money or how people get rich. Like that is such a small, small portion of economics and economics is really a system of thought a system of creative problem solving that uh, wants to rely on data and on, uh, yeah, I'll say that, yeah. Economics is a system of thought and a system of problem solving that wants to rely on data to find the solution that has the greatest value. And that you could do that, like, when I decide if I'm gonna take some ibuprofen, like I'm making an economic decision. And when I, that's just the same as the economic decision that I make when I decide whether I'm going to buy a stock or AMC or whatever. 
like it's the same decision. Uh, then you can look through it, look at it through that economic lens. And I think that as much as the free economics people uh, kind of have given the economics profession a bad name over the years by uh, putting out some some stuff that was not fully vetted, uh, they've they've done a good service for economics in showing that uh, we're more than just people who care about the economy. Economics is about more than the economy. It's about everyday people making everyday decisions and uh, how we can do that better. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think economics is about how humans interact with value and we all need to understand each other's values and how we interact with each other um, um, in this world and if we are to make it a better one. I think that's a good note to end with. Thank you so much, Theo, for coming on this podcast. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. It's fun. It's been a pleasure. Speaking of value, if you value <laughs> this podcast and want to support it um, and possibly make incentivize me to want to continue this podcast after I um, graduate and even if I enter, when I enter law school, you could be one of the first donors to this podcast on Patreon or onto the, the uh, donate link through Anchor. Um, I know that, that by the time I do my next episode, I'll have enough, enough sponsor, uh, en enough listeners. If, uh, if, 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 I, if my growth per episode uh, um, on Spotify continues at the current rate, I'll have enough uh, listeners to earn a $1, like, like a, like a $1 Anchor sponsorship. So just keep uh, share this podcast is that the more listeners I get, the more potential sponsor money I could get. And um, yeah, and donate if you value this. At the end of the day, you're, you're being motivated by self-interest. And uh, because you're self-interested in wanting this podcast to not end uh, at the end of this year. Um, and you're, you're also might be self-interested by making me just feel better and feeling good that you're helping a person that helped you. So uh, if it's in your self-interest, please contribute, please share, um, please follow me on Instagram at the debts we owe podcast with underscores in between each word. Um, and thank you so much. I hope you had a fun time and that your brain grew, grew a little bit stronger uh, from this experience.